still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you And he won the pony too Thank you, fuck you, bye 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 Hello again, friends And you are our friends And welcome back to another summer's edition Of Jim Cornette's drive Through Right here on another bright and hot No matter where you are, it is hot A hot summer's day and we're going to have hot wrestling talk. There's a truck or something making noise outside. What the hell? I'm your host, the great Brian Last. We're dealing with trucks, but Jim's playing it straight this week. And here he is, the star of the show, Mr. Jim Cornette. Oh, take your happy summer and blow it out your fucking sphincter. How's that? How about that? And by take your truck, too, and drive it up there. That doesn't sound pleasurable, no. No, it wouldn't be. Well, if, you, if you're going to take the truck... I'd advise you to pull the rearview mirrors in. It's easier to get it up there. Um, we we did our happy talk. You know, we should never talk, you and I, before we do this program, because now we have no, no happy talk, no jocular conversation, no, you know, what, what's the word I'm searching for? Uh, no, no kibitzing going on, because we've already talked about the weather. Should we talk about the weather again now that we're on tape and we're recording? I just like that this is jocular conversation. I picture you and I in the locker room sitting around. We're being very jocular. Yes, jocularity is the key here. It's fucking hot. It's hot everywhere. Even the United Kingdom. I told you this. You hadn't heard this, seen this on the news. I told you the all-time record temperature in the United Kingdom was reached the other day. It has never been 104 degrees anywhere in the United Kingdom until just a couple of days ago, which I, I was not aware of that. I thought they had regular weather like everybody else, but apparently it never gets that warm. Now, I'm not saying that's something you'd need to have every day, but I would think that at some point throughout history, it would have been 104 degrees there because it's it's always 104 degrees in Phoenix, Arizona, for heaven's sake. I didn't think that, you know... I'm guessing the sun broke through the fog? Possibly. Lord Fogg, I was there in February and froze my ass off and got horribly ill because it was wet and freezing. And I was there in October and it was rather pleasant. I didn't realize that the majority of people over there have no air conditioning and that it doesn't get somebody. Some newscaster said, oh, when it's 60 something degrees, we consider it T-shirt weather. I guess does some of the. The people over there, the cult, does it not get to be 85 in August in the summertime like it does, I thought, everywhere else in the world? Depending on when your summertime is, I was not aware of this. And that's a thing that happened to me, the no air conditioning business. I've told this story before. You may have heard it recently. 
the the hotel in Boston, Massachusetts, major American city that the WWF put us all in for WrestleMania what was 98 with uh, uh Austin and Tyson. We get there and check in. I go to my room and it's it's the first week of April, but in they're having a freakish heat wave in Boston. It's like 82 degrees. And I get in the room and I can't turn the air on. I can get heat, but I can't get the air and I'm not seeing the proper switches. It's a, you know, and this is the WWF hotel. This isn't like the fucking sleeping fuck, right? And so I called down to the desk. I said, I can't get my air to work. Oh, it's not on. I said, I know. Oh, but you don't, you don't understand. And then they, t- and I'd never heard of this before. This was 1998. Wasn't 1898. In that hotel, major chain, you could either have heat or air, but not both at the same time. And they turned at regular intervals in spring and fall, they turned the one or the other on. And they said, our our changeover isn't scheduled yet. I said, it's 80 fucking two. So I slept one night in downtown Boston with the window open, trying to get some goddamn circulation and hearing the sirens and the honking and the noise the next day i got up checked out went across the street to the newer marriott and checked in and paid the extra 40 bucks a night out of my own pocket to get air conditioning i wonder what they're doing now what is the temperature in boston right now brian are they getting this like we are i hope i'm pretty sure everyone is and i'm right now looking up boston temperature it is 87 degrees. I have the not partici- even noon. I have the particip- uh, participation, the precipitation, participation? the precipitation, the humidity, and the wind. But for some reason, the dew point is not posted here with all the What's other the normally posted stats about weather. Interesting. See, they don't even want to tell you up because they're figuring that everybody's going to riot in the streets because they don't have any air conditioning. Same thing I got when I went to Connecticut, tried to find a house to rent with air conditioning. Well, it's only hot up here for three months out of the year, so you got to sweat your fucking balls off for three months out of the year because you're too cheap or whatever the case to put air conditioning in your home so you can live in the 20th century like the rest of us. Dew point is 65 in Boston right now. Well, that that's starting to get up there. That's that's in the uncomfortable range. If they get to seventy in the nineties, those people in Boston, their their beans are going to be roasting. Humidity fifty five percent. Well, that doesn't really matter. You can have high humidity with a low temperature or a lower dew point, and and it's it's not appreciably miserable. In other stories, the Red Sox are going nowhere this year. Sorry, fans, but let's go Mets. Back to you, Jim. Well, thank you. And now, an editorial comment. Fuck you! Boston? All right, this is... Was that fuck you to Boston? uh, Just anybody that cares to take it to heart. That's just a general (laughs) blanket fuck you. If you deserve a fuck you, no matter who you are, where you are, if you down deep in that pea brain of yours know that you've done something that deserves a fuck you, that fuck you was for you. Other than tolls, and traffic, and I don't know how much you would have seen beyond where you went with wrestling, but what are your thoughts on New England? Do you like New England at all? Well, from the outhouse to the penthouse and back, 
There are parts of New England. Stace and I years ago went to Provincetown, Massachusetts. It's right out there on the tip of the Cape. And you've got water on like three sides of you. It's It's a beautiful drive down the scenic highways and byways from the city. And it, the, the, we stayed at the Land's End Inn. It's an old house on top of a hill that you can see out just the water everywhere. And it's very beautiful, little bed and breakfast thing. I don't recall them giving us breakfast, but we slept late. And they had great restaurants. And it's, you know, the old time fishing village type of vibe. And it's a tourist place and very cool and art studios and different things like that. Love that kind of New England. Never been there in the wintertime, probably would change my attitude. I understand they get snow up to your crotch on a good day. But Boston can suck a worm. Fuck. Talk about New York being crowded and traffic. And they have, you've been to Boston, obviously. You're up there with, in that area. I like Boston. What the fuck? The traffic and the roads and the construction and the confusion and everything's built on top of everything else because they got no more room to spread out because they're on the water. And I actually, so when we were on the way to the Boston Garden one time and there was a parking lot on each side of a road that was underneath bridges that were was a highway on top of that running past and underneath a goddamn building. They just built shit all over the top of everything up there because there's there's not enough room in downtown Boston to whip a cat in without getting fur in your mouth. It's just, it's tight. My claustrophobia kicks in. Do not like the New England cities. They're too small to be that big. You're not a fan of cities in general, and I'm curious, based on the most recent visit you've had to any of the major cities, what is the one you mind the least, and what is the one you hate the most? New York, Philly, Boston, Atlanta? I guess those are the big four I could think of that you've well, been to. Well, wait a minute. You just, recently. New York, Philly, Boston, Atlanta, one of these things is not like Chicago. No, that you've been to in the last 10 years that well, I can I thought think you of. were talking about the Northeast. No. Uh, no, you know, I love Major Baltimore. cities, I'm talking. I love Baltimore. Baltimore is the only place I've gone in the last 15 years in the way of staying in a city to go there for a pleasure trip. Sabatino's Little Italy, the I think they may have closed it now, but we were there and saw it at the Jeppe's Entertainment Museum with all the classic comic books and things. The, the restaurants in general, uh, the Inner Harbor, love Baltimore, hate every other fucking city I can think of. North or South, actually. If you're downtown, you can't tell the difference. It all looks the same. You're smelling exhaust. You're looking at concrete. You're hearing noise. You're seeing people. And it's too fucking crowded. If there's one you have to drive in, what do you pick? Philly, Boston, or New York? Um, oh, Jesus H. Christ. Probably Philly just because it's the lesser of three evils. I've refused to ever drive in New York City again, and I haven't been to Boston in a long time and probably ain't going to break that string anytime soon. I'll tell you one, and I had a anxiety attack. Providence, Rhode Island, of all places, I thought Providence was just a a little place, but I went up to the, um, oh God, what was the name? It was, a, it was a, a comic and wrestling con fan fest thing, and I can't remember the exact name of it. It's been six, seven years ago now. 
And they put us up at this beautiful inside high-rise hotel right in the middle of downtown Providence. But between the street construction and the fact that I'm downtown anyway and I'm trying to drive by myself and see these fucking signs, I circled around this hotel six times before I could figure out how to get into it and got getting lost in the road construction. And then had to park in the parking garage and go up to my room on like the 18th floor. And it was one of those deals where you have to give your keys to the parking people. So I had anxiety for three days because I'm sitting in my room, which is 20 floors above this fucking city. All I can see is concrete and buildings. I'm not only 20 floors up, but a couple of blocks away from my vehicle that I do not have the keys to. And I couldn't see a fucking tree. I don't know whether my asshole unpuckered enough to take a shit till I got out of there. Not comfy in those places, in those situations. What is, and maybe surprisingly so, what is the best major city? What is the major city you're like, oh my God, traffic's fine. This is fine. I feel safe. Any city you could think of? Well, I used to love Charlotte when I lived there, but now you go there and it's like going to goddamn Philadelphia. It's yeah, now a, it's a major city. It wasn't a major yeah, a, city yet. <laughs> well, no, it was a it was a major city in the South. It was just under control and under control. You know, and <laughs> traffic wasn't bad, and you could see trees everywhere, and there was space. You know, to breathe oxygen. Fuck no, it looks it looks more like Atlanta now. What um, percentage I, of the Mid Atlantic wrestlers lived in Charlotte? When you were there, at least. 98? I mean, somebody may have lived in, you know, uh, we lived in Pineville, which was kind of a suburb, and then they changed the address without us moving, and it became Charlotte. Somebody else may have lived in Matthews, or Nelson Royal lived up in, uh, oh gosh, was it Concord? Or where is, what Western store was? Mooresville. But no, everybody lived in Charlotte. Because, I mean, that was, it was not only geographically the center of the territory when you drove everywhere, but it was the major airport when Crockett started expanding. And it was the, where the office was, you had to be there every Wednesday to shoot promos anyway. So yeah, everybody lived in Charlotte and that was working there regularly. If somebody came in for a date or two, I mean, when Ole worked for Crockett, he didn't moved back to Charlotte from, I think he was in Atlanta then, but you know, he knew he wasn't going to make a career out of it at that point. He had lived in Charlotte many years previous. All right. And this has been Why Jim you, Cornette what, what, on cities. Who are you cities. trying to track down? Who are you looking for? No, I'm just curious. You know, when you think about mid-Atlantic wrestling at that point, how many of the guys would have wanted to live as close to Charlotte as possible? Was it a necessary thing you had to do because of the travel in the central location? Well, no, you, you could have lived in, fucking Rock Hill, South Carolina, and everybody would point at you as soon as you went outside your house because, you know, Rock Hill's a small town and everybody knew who everybody was, or you could kind of get lost in Charlotte every once in a while if you wanted to go to the grocery, put a hat on, whatever. But that there were usually all the guys in any of the territories lived in the same place because it was easier to hook up for rides and that was kind of established as the central location. In Louisiana, it got... It got to be different because normally before we got there, the guys lived in Baton Rouge because everybody wanted to go out to a bar or be in a bigger city or, you know, more girls around or whatever. Fuck. 
the, but that meant that the guys that lived in Baton Rouge, when you went to Oklahoma, Arkansas, you're, you're away from home for two days, make the one shot. Alexandria, Louisiana is where the guys started moving when we started going there because since Watts had expanded into Oklahoma and then he'd picked up Houston, it was it was more centrally located and Shreveport was where we did TV and promos every week and it was closer to that, but then you lived in Alexandria, Louisiana and that was the most, you know, bumfuck town in the history of towns. and. Everybody, well, you couldn't go out in public because everybody knew who we were. The heels couldn't go really anywhere except, you know, when Doc or Hercules Hernandez were heels, they'd go to the fucking lighthouse, a.k.a. the fight house, because they didn't give a shit. But if you just wanted to be unmolested on your way to fucking Kroger, Alexandria was not the place to be, so the guys had their wives or girlfriends do the grocery shopping. But we never spent any time in our homes anyway because we were always in the car, so... That shortened the car trip, but there were like two movie theaters that you couldn't go to because you didn't have time, you didn't want to get recognized, and one shopping mall that you couldn't go to because you didn't have time and you didn't want to get recognized. Of course, if someone wanted to find you, they could just hire a detective, and there are a lot of detectives out there, apparently, in the audience. Boy, there, there are, and as a matter of fact, this coming week on the Jim Cornette Experience, we hope to have an update on Norman Weasel Dooley. Uh, this past week on the Experience, we read some of the Weasel's World newsletters that we had been sent by a fan, and we talked about how the fact that not only have Weasel's newsletters been missing for years from almost everybody's collection, but nobody's heard from him, and there are a number of amateur clouseaus in our audience, including the big boy himself, John Fell. He sent me some amazing information, and, and I'm not, I'll, I'll share it on the experience this week. But we hope to have an update this coming weekend on the Jim Cornette Experience, along with uh, the review of the Ring of Honor pay-per-view that is actually going to contain some good matches. So I don't even feel like I'm being, you know, robbed when I when I purchase and watch this thing. But uh, we'll have that on the experience this weekend. So it may be, it'll be towards Sunday evening that the experience is out, so we have time to get that review in. That's right. The summer, That's right. summer construction recording schedule continues. Well, my drywall isn't drying. That's why we're we're in, <laughs> in silence today. There's no beating and banging and pounding because the dry the first installation of drywall went up and then it's a process. They gotta come and they gotta continue smearing the things and the such. And but apparently because of the humidity here, even though we've had a giant four-foot fan. I'm not talking about a two-legged ticket-purchasing patron. I'm talking about a giant four-foot circumference air fan blowing on it with all the windows open and everything. So I have a few hours here where they're not making noise because my my it's not drywall, it's wet wall. But that's going in. But we have some good news, Brian, before this is your show. Real quickly, thank you to everybody. Uh, the... <laughs> This past weekend, even though Hotchkiss committed a faux pas and the original Jim Cornette action figures to benefit the Crusade for Children did not go up at the proper time, they went up a few hours later, they did sell out, and we raised $4,200 for the WHS Crusade for Children. The bloody 
variant figures that we saved back for Australia and New Zealand. That went off without a hitch. I believe those are gone, but still remaining is the Live in London and A Corny in the UK documentary DVDs of my 2014 trip to merry old England and also a few remaining I'm a Sin Girl t-shirts with the money going to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI.org. And there's only a handful of those left for the the fairer sex that felt like they got left out when we had the I'm a Sin guy shirts. And the official total for all when these last few Sin Girl shirts are sold, the official total to NAMI will be almost $9,000, I believe. So credit Stacy and all of the senior members of the Cult of Cornette and the Knights of Sin like John Fell, Lee Petrie, and Jacked Up Jeremy Bagley. And by the way, happy birthday again, Megatron. And um, well, now that I've plugged the cat, who did I leave out on the fundraiser? All of the folks who instigated that, uh, we thank you. Now it's your show. I was trying to come up with a sound that Megatron would sound like. No, that ain't good. What, what it's a fucking cat! A cat named Megatron. Megatron doesn't purr. Megatron makes electronic noises as far as I'm concerned. You know what Megatron does? At you. That's what Megatron does. Oh, luckily Megatron's nowhere near last week. You know, I heard Harley take a shit last week. You heard it? From 20 feet away. I don't know what had happened to my little, beautiful little puppy. She's normally so feminine and dainty. But I took her out to her favorite pooping place out in in the right side of the front yard. And she was circling around in a circle. And I was looking at the trees and seeing what needed to be trimmed. And suddenly I heard (laughs) from, and it coincided with an expulsion from her anal orifice from 20 feet away, that cute little 17 pound dog. That was amazing. I just want to recognize Harley Quinn for that. I mean, Vince McMahon would have been proud. It almost got her a job in the WWE. And people thought you only popped for things that came out of a box. But ladies and gentlemen, let's continue on here with this show. Now, Jim, there are several things that we've checked out on TV the last few days. Let's talk about what we didn't watch. We we didn't watch Rampage. No, we didn't. Nobody else did either. So we were in good company. And we didn't. uh, What else didn't we watch? Was there anything on SmackDown? We talked about that. We talked about SmackDown. Yeah. We didn't watch about. 90% 90% of Raw. Yeah, well, no, we didn't. We didn't, but we did. Well, actually, I watched a little more of Raw than you did because I just wanted to be completely fair and and honest and objective when I pronounced this program dead on arrival. So I checked its pulse, its respiration, got all checked all the vital signs, and no, uh-uh. Whoo! But it was... It was it was bookended by two of the oddest segments that I've ever seen on the program, and and one of them was just lack of ability to perform any of the material they had and, and make it interesting. That was last. We'll talk about that. But the opening segment, you saw this first, and then you said, holy, what the fuck, right? I understand 
Because well, I believe that I understand a bit of how Vince McMahon thinks. So I understand why they were doing it. I just don't know that I understand why nobody could necessarily talk him out of it. And poor, and I understand why they picked Titus O'Neil because here's the thing. All the bad publicity and the attorneys investigating Vince's improprieties and the news stories and all that stuff, they want to babyface the company. And when Vince came out and, you know, pretty much showed everybody that he wasn't going to go anywhere and that he was, fuck you to the people investigating me and I brought you this shit, he liked it. But I bet you somebody said to him, well, you know, Vince, the thing is, you know, you're delivering the message here and maybe we ought to babyface the company a little more. So somehow, somebody planted in the, the idea in his head that it's, we need to get a different spokesman for the message. So they find the only guy in the company that nobody can say anything bad about or has anything bad to say about or hadn't done anything stupid in public that we know of and, and is seen at a lot of charity events and, you know, does these things. And he gets to deliver the message about how baby faced the company is. Have you ever seen a motherfucker more uncomfortable in certain positions in that promo than he was? Could you tell that Titus knew that he was out there in a death spot to try to, I don't know, somehow babyface, you know, Mussolini's army. He didn't look too comfortable. No, and how could you be? What was the point of it? You know, if you're selling him on it, okay, here's what we want you to do. Does he at any point say, why? Why are we doing this? And then they can say, well, because Vince can't go on TV again, because every time he does, another three women come out. Yeah. Ty, didn't he previously get suspended for grabbing Vince's arm once? Yes. And he missed a WrestleMania payday because of it? Yeah, and and that deal was they were all walking back up the ramp and Stephanie was walking up and Titus O'Neil reached out and just, you know, didn't grab, grab is a strong word, took hold of Vince's arm and, and said, he said, hey, ladies first, and Vince pulled away from him like he had just stuck a shitty finger up Vince's nose and got mad and yelled at him on the spot and then suspended him some for for some period of time and that was a a big story like what the fuck and he must have got up on the wrong side of the bed that day but it was a way outsized response for the incident that happened and then later on they make him he doesn't wrestle anymore did he get hurt or did they just say okay we're going to make this guy the global ambassador because Vince suspended him one time and looked bad over it. I don't know. But the point is, Titus O'Neil opens up with this somber thing, and it, it was almost like the opening of a charity fundraising telethon where you come out and the lights are subdued and the spokesman or host or whatever tells the story of this horrible illness that we're going to try to combat. But instead, he was delivering this message. It, anything he did in his career or anything else in his life, that was great. But he said he actually reached the pinnacle of success by becoming WWE Global Ambassador. 
a position that had never existed before they gave it to him. And I'm not I'm not knocking Titus O'Neil, folks. I'm telling they had him come out and say this. And so I'm knocking those people. And now he reps the WWE all over the world, spreading goodwill. We put smiles on people's faces. We help the less fortunate. We support service members around the globe. And that got a little USA, USA. And we support causes like family and health and community. And so so far, it is a charity fundraiser telethon, right? And then he goes to, that's why, this is a quote, that's why you'll never hear WWE talk about politics or religion or any divisive subject matter. And then he paused waiting for the applause and the cheers that never came, and he just got a mm from the audience, and then you saw the look on his face like, oh, shit, that didn't get over. And where am I going? Uh, and why would it? Who's going to pop for that? Again. <laughs> again. <laughs> and they, but now the people are going, well, okay, wait, where is this going? What? Why are we seeing this? And then he says, regardless of race, nationality, economic status, this is a safe haven to have a good time. No, we thought if you... we That's Vince's argument in court, I think. I didn't do anything wrong. This is a safe haven to have a good time. Have a good time. But, and the people are like... And then he says, so are you ready to have a good time? Well, of course they, then they cheer. Yes, please stop. You're killing our buzz. Start the show. So (laughs) welcome to Monday Night Raw. And that gets a cheer. But what, if there had some way, if they had, if there had been a point to him saying that, if some occurrence had instigated him making that statement or even some occurrence that they could have claimed, but there was no reason for it. It was just out there. and. You know, there you go. We're a couple of weeks away from a five-minute opening montage of Make-A-Wish stuff that WWE's done over their 40 <laughs> years. <laughs> it's going to happen. I That's mean, what this is, know, right? I mean, everyone deserves credit for the charitable work they do. But this was kind of like rubbing the puppy's nose in the in the mess with having this guy come out here and make this long statement about all the good things... None of the people in the arena said they didn't do these good things or have any problem with them. So they're like, why do we have to listen to this? Is this, you know, a school assembly? We won't, dis- we won't discuss politics because you will hate half the locker room and the ownership. <laughs> we won't discuss politics because we haven't done smack down the vote in a while. What was that speech? Oh, uh, and, you know, and we will... Every whenever we can get away with it, uh, have something in ridiculously bad taste, but we won't discuss politics, religion, or divisive subjects. We are a cure to and loneliness. We also, we will, our owner, his wife, will be appointed to the fucking cabinet of the most criminal president in the history of the United States of America, but we don't discuss politics on this program. So I, they they certainly started off on a somber tone, didn't they? There wasn't anything to really get salivating about after that. And again, I'm a different fan than someone who doesn't give a shit about wrestling beyond what they see on TV, but I immediately turned off the channel and turned it a home run derby. 
And it wasn't just because it was the Home Run Derby, but there was nothing in that segment that hooked me to see anything else on the show. And then it went right to the commentators, and I was really like, oh, I'm done with this. <laughs> I'll check in later on. Well, I'll fill you in on a few things, but the Home Run Derby, who won? Pete Alonso from the Mets had won the previous two years. Let me say that, but he did not win this year. Juan Soto, who is on the Washington Nationals and just turned down a $440 million contract, he may be a Met one day. We'll see what happens, but he won the Home Run Derby. What was his time? No, they all have the same time. Well, it's then how can anybody win if they all have the same time? If, if Somebody's got to win the fucking race. How do you think a Home Run Derby works? Well, I, I, I'm assuming they're not really riding horses. I thought they just ran themselves. Okay. You know, because it would be awkward to get a horse on a baseball field and have him run the bases. I think the manure would so be I'm a th problem. So in, in a home run derby, that's if you hit a home run, the fastest time around the bases wins, right? It's who can hit the most home runs in a set period of time with a couple of bonus periods that are enabled by certain goals being met. Huh? Why do they call it a derby if nobody's running? The Kentucky Derby, the horses run. Home run derby, the guys hitting the home runs ought to run. The fans run for the home run balls. Well, how can you tell who wins there? Who catches it? Well, there's no victory. It seems like random chance, not a contest of skill. Oh, there is one guy. They've done a couple of things, I think, on Real Sports about him. This annoying guy who, like, goes to baseball games and pushes kids out of the way to get baseballs. He has, like, the <laughs> largest collection of baseballs from games. He catches major home runs. He knows where to sit but he will like shove people out of the way and do anything he can to get the balls. Has anybody punched him in the face? Not yet, I don't think, but it should happen. He's out there shoving kids. Where's the kids' parents? They just drop them off at the ball game, free babysitting or whatever? We were talking about Raw. These little fucking rugrats ought to be goddamn supervised. They could get into trouble. So now you're or against the kids. Around. Well, I'm against everybody. I'm saying the kids ought to be supervised or else they'll get into trouble, but this fucking guy pushing the kids around, one of the fucking parents that's obviously not there supervising the kids ought to punch him in his fucking face. Have you ever been to a baseball game? I went to see, who did Mickey Mantle play for in the 60s? Huh? You're kidding, right? I'm, no, I'm asking you a question. It was a New York team. I know they've got a couple. The New York Yankees. He's one of the most famous Yankees or baseball players in general of all time. Okay, well, there you go. Well, when I was five years old, my father took my mom and I to New York because he had a business trip, some meeting or whatever, and we went for a few days, and I saw the Statue of Liberty, and I saw the, the Empire State Building, and he took me to a baseball game at what I guess Yankee Stadium would be where the Yankees play in New York, right? We went to Yankee Stadium because he wanted me to see Mickey Mantle play. Well, I'm five years old, right? And baseball takes forever. So basically after six innings or whatever, whenever they do the stretch thing, Seven I'm innings. getting a little cranky. In the middle of the seventh inning, they do that. Okay, I'm getting a little cranky, and he said, well, there isn't going to be a lot of traffic. Let's beat the traffic. And we left, and then Mickey Mantle hit a home run. You found out after the fact that he hit a home run after you left? Yeah, because my mom told me that story many, many years after, many times. 
Yeah, we took you just so you could see Mickey Mantle hit a home run, and then we left, and then Mickey Mantle hit the home run. But I don't remember the goddamn ball. I remember the Empire State Building, and I remember the Statue of Liberty, and the Staten Island Ferry was, I think I made my mom take me back and forth twice. I have memories of that, because like I said, I was five, but I don't remember being, but I have the program from the baseball game and a little kid's New York Yankees cap from 1966. So is this where your hatred of driving in New York comes from? The horror of leaving the game and knowing the home run was hit? No, I don't remember that that whole thing. I don't remember the traffic or anything. But I do remember the Statue of Liberty, the Staten Island Ferry, and and a little bit of the Empire State Building. So baseball never made a fucking impression on me at all. Do you remember the show we were reviewing a few minutes ago before we decided to talk about home run derbies and baseball? That was something else that didn't make an impression. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched it yesterday, and I'm having to refer to my notes. All right, I'm going to fill you in on a couple things you missed. Um, after you turned off the telethon, Becky and Bianca and Carmella came out and talked for 10 minutes. The announce, They got in a fight. The announcer said, ring the bell, and they went to a break. <laughs> so then they came back from a break, and then they rang the bell. That was three and a half minutes later. It was Bianca versus Carmella, and Becky was on color. And they went about 12 or 13 minutes through a break, and then Bianca just hit her finish, one, two, three. So that was exciting. Did you see the KO show with Riddle? No, I only saw the first segment and the last segment. I'm, I was being facetious, because I knew you were going to say no, and then I could say, well, it went 10 minutes, <laughs> and Seth Rollins came out, and hit Riddle from behind, and Owens disappeared, and Seth gave him a couple of curb stomps and did some gold dust poses, where he goes, <sighs> and makes that face. What about the Judgment Day? Remember when we liked the Judgment Day? Now, who's in it? Who's currently in it? Well, <laughs> originally it was Edge who enticed Damian Priest and Rhea Ripley to shed and the bonds and shackles of that had been of, of 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 matrimony, the bonds and shackles of oppression that had been putting them down, and join up with his revolutionary group, and that was fucking great, and and I loved it. And then they turned on Edge and put Finn Balor in the group. Now they've traded a Hall of Famer and a legend and an outstanding promo for a guy that's great technically and very small and has the personality of cabbage and then rhea ripley's injured or sick or both apparently did you see the picture of her going around wearing a, a thing on her chest a, monitor, a heart, heart monitor okay first we heard that she took a ddt from one of these girls and got folded up and and her knees broke her teeth and or gave her a concussion. Then she put a picture out of herself with a heart monitor on. Then she's put pictures out of herself flexing in front of the mirror, and she's got a better body than Balor now. <laughs> but she's apparently either still sick or injured. But God, I don't care if they have to bring her out in a wheelchair. The team is in need, Rhea, because Priest and Balor were standing there, and now Damian Priest is the one doing the talking for the group, because Finn sounds like a fucking Irish Opie Taylor. So now, guess guess who they were trying to entice to join the group now? 
who Finn Balor and the Judgment Day are trying to. So it's just him and Damian Priest. It's Damian Priest and Balor, and Rhea's not there, obviously, and Edge has been excommunicated, and they showed that footage again. Is Rhea referenced, or is she wiped off the show? I, I didn't hear her talked about, but, you know, okay. hopefully when she comes back, she'll still... But anyway... So I'm going to guess that it's not another girl, it's a guy. It's a guy. Okay. Almost. Kind of, yeah. Is it almost? He makes it. No. Oh. I'm, not, I'm saying he's almost a guy. He's, oh. Well, he's almost he's, a wrestler. <laughs> he's almost a wrestler. Um, Dominic Mysterio is who they say, dump your, your dad, he's holding you back. So then they have a match with Damian Priest against Rey Mysterio. And Damian Priest beats Rey Mysterio flat in the middle with his finish, one, two, three. Remember when Rey Mysterio was one of the top stars in the business, one of the most popular guys in wrestling and a superstar to the Latino population? Remember when he was a free agent a couple of years ago and he could have signed with AEW? Yes. Look at how they treated Sting. They would have treated him better. And remember also that he actually lost an eye for these people. He actually contributed his ping pong ball eyeball for these folks, and they're beating him. So anyway, they beat Rey Mysterio. Then the heels jump in and beat him up further and threaten to concerto him because Dominic is at ringside. Now remember, Dominic is a foot taller than his father. And Dominic has been presented as a wrestler for the past year, year and a half, and he's been competitive with a few people. He's there at ringside. There's two heels beating up his father with the chairs and everything, and he, instead of getting in and making a comeback on him, jumps in and covers his dad up and begs him not to hurt him. Oh, please, please, I'll join the group because they're telling we're going to concerto your dad unless you join Judgment Day. So he said, okay, I'll join. And that's when they say, well, never mind. And they beat him up because <laughs> they didn't want him to join because he was saving his father. They wanted him to join because he really wanted. God damn it. Right? Just God damn it. You know, it makes me wonder how much better wrestling would have been if someone had done this kind of thing with Gino and Leo Garibaldi. Would have really lit things up. <laughs> This makes no sense. This guy could have signed with AEW. And look, we've seen guys come out of there. It's not really a training system, but people who train and have an open door to get talent on AEW TV, we've seen a lot of bad shit. But you can't tell me Dominic Mysterio wouldn't be better than what he is right now. And Rey Mysterio wouldn't have lost an eye. But on the other hand, he wouldn't have gained an eye. But maybe he'd be somewhere where he would have been used better and his son would have been used better because... How do you justify the, I mean, other than the money, and it would have been money on the other side, maybe not as much, but how do you justify Ray signing back with WWE again? They, they signed him, treated him like a commodity, and then once they got him, they treated him like crap on TV. Well, guess what they're doing next week? I don't know. The 20th anniversary celebration of Ray Mysterio in the WWE. Oh my God. The same guy that just got beat flat in the middle of one, two, three, has been doing jobs most time for the past year. Then the heels beat him up after they beat him, and then they punked his son out. <laughs> but t- next week in Madison Square Garden, they're going to celebrate his 20 years of excellence. And Judgment Day says they're going to fuck that up, too. 
And then you also miss Seth, Seth Rollins, Seth freaking Rollins, or Seth Franklin Rollins, we should say, or Jack Double Barrel Cannon, or whatever his name is this week, against Elrod. You remember Elrod? Oh, I'm sorry, it's Ezekiel. Used to be Elias. Their older brother is Elrod. They actually had that match. It took a while. It was probably a good match, but who gives a shit because it's Ezekiel Rod and Seth won with a curb stomp. And I'm telling you, Brian, you admit this was a brilliant piece of booking next that straight off Mid-South Wrestling. Do you know you want to know what you missed here with with the street party? or the Private Profits, and Almost, and MVP, and the Usos. You want to you know what you missed? Yeah, I love Mid-South Wrestling. I want to know what I missed. Well, you had Almost in a single match against Dawkins from Street Party. Montez Ford was in his corner. Almost, the seven-plus-foot giant, had MVP as manager and the Usos. And they had a short match, very brutal, very brutal to watch. And right in the opening segment of the, or opening moments of the match, almost is standing in the ring, and old Montez Ford, the second of Dawkins, reaches in and, and tries to trip almost, pulls his leg. And the referee doesn't see that. And then they have a, like I said, a short, brutal match, almost, oh my God, we, we've got to rename him because he's not almost ready. He's not even almost, almost ready. Not quite. There you go. So not quite has this match for a couple minutes. And then Dawkins hits the ropes and MVP reaches in and trips him and the referee sees it disqualification. And then the heels are going, but they did it. They did it. Yeah, they did it three or four minutes ago. And the guy didn't even go down. And the baby faces cheated first. They actually really did. So Adam Pierce comes out and says, I've got the solution to this. It's going to be a tag team match with both of the street party against almost an MVP who's dressed in a fucking suit and tie. And when they make that tag match, guess what they did? Went to commercial. They went to a commercial. And when they come back, MVP has taken his jacket off. He hadn't even loosened his tie. He's standing on the apron. But now they're back and they're having a tag team match. And this was... I'm sorry, it's just brutal watching this fucking almost, not quite, not even, whatever his name is, just, oh, it's brutal. And so finally, Montez Ford hits that big splash off the top rope where he gets 10 feet in the air above the top turnbuckle and gets a one count and goes for a second splash off the top rope and the Usos reach up and trip him and they get disqualified again. And then the Usos come in and the heels beat the baby faces up again. And one of the announcers was screaming for, because Jeff Jarrett's going to be the special referee between the Usos and the street profits or street party or private profit, which, whichever. I can't even remember which are the real nicknames now. And one of the announcers, they need Jeff Jarrett. They need Jerry Jahel. They need Dundee. <laughs> If Dundee refereed this match, he'd just knock the shit out of everybody and walk off. Anyway, so you missed that. It was an amazing 
booking display of disqualifications for no reason in a flat manner. I've never seen them done like that before. And then at an hour and 52 minutes into the show, Brian, Theory makes his entrance. And they go to a break. And they do a SummerSlam package. And they come back and we see Theory in the ring taking selfies. And they do a SummerSlam plug. And then Theory does a promo in the ring about the U.S. title, winning it back from Lashley, and then cashing in the Money in the Bank briefcase at SummerSlam. And he started getting, actually, I got a kick out of this. He started getting whatted, and he just fired back at him. What, 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 what? And started getting a little more oomph when he went back to his promo, and he incorporated the what's into his promo. <laughs> and actually, it made it work, and it kind of fucking fit. And he didn't give him any. So I like this kid. I love this kid. But then he showed more tape of Ziggler fucking him around last week. And then here comes AJ's music and he makes his entrance and he does a promo to the ring. And then they do a back and forth promo in the ring. The back and forth wasn't that bad, but it's fucking over two hours into the show and it's going on forever. And I'm screaming, get to it. Get to it. What the fuck? And finally, AJ hauls off and pops Theory, and he takes a bump to the floor, and music plays, and here comes Dolph Ziggler. And guess what they did, Brian? Commercial. They went to a break. And they come back and ring the bell. It was 18 minutes from the time that Theory made his entrance to the time the bell rang for this match. And it was AJ Styles and Theory with Dolph Ziggler at ringside. And it was a good match. It was nothing special because it's on Raw. And they have, they've not only trained the people not to really give a shit, but they don't give a shit about the matches themselves. What we've seen, everything, they'll do some stuff for a while and then the referee will disqualify somebody for no reason or they'll do some stuff and then somebody will hit a finish out of nowhere and then everybody gets beat up afterwards. So this audience sees the matches as less important than the entrances and the promos and even the commercials because that's what they're made to seem like. And over across the street on AEW, the fans that are most devoted to them like hour-long car wrecks with guys who can't even fucking speak English when it is their first language. And they don't care because they just want to see mayhem. So we've got cheese molding on one fucking network and goddamn endless videos of explosions and car wrecks and fucking animal eviscerations on the other show. Theory is a prodigy. He's fucking fantastic. But this went through a couple of breaks to where they had to do some kind of spot that stopped everybody's momentum so that the announcers could not pitch to the break. And then finally, the finish of this was earlier in the match, Theory, while he was out on the floor, had shoved Ziggler on his ass. So then he goes outside on the floor with AJ, throws AJ back in, and behind the referee's back, Ziggler hits him with a super kick. Theory takes a bump on the floor, sells the super kick for the 10 count, and gets counted out. So super kick on one program is a count out, and on the other one, nobody even falls down. And then AJ Styles 
after Theory got counted out, gave him the Styles Clash. So as a rotten finish that did nothing for Theory, AJ's as over as he's going to get. This need, didn't, need, didn't need to do anything for him. And Ziggler has been wasted for 10 years. Theory's the one they're pushing, and he's the one that ends up getting beat up by everybody. Because writers. Then you missed a six-girl tag team match. No, I didn't. I wish I had. And then we come to the main event of Remember when the main event on Raw was some kind of showdown between Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker or The Rock and Mankind or Triple H with a sledgehammer and somebody? The last segment main event position on Raw was Miz, old frog face, introducing Logan Paul. And I'm watching this. Of course, I didn't watch it live because that would have required me staying up till 11 o'clock at night. I watched it DVR the next day. Stace is on the way to take Harley to get her canine flu shot and sees Logan Paul come and asks, who, who is that? And I said, that's a social media guy, celebrity that they have just signed and did a celebrity match at WrestleMania. And she rolls her eyes, and then he gets in the ring and is standing next to Miz, and she looks and she says, Miz, that's Miz. He's a wrestler, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, he's not as big as the fucking guy from Twitter. <laughs> no. <sighs> Again, I know I know a lot of people know who Logan Paul is. Are a lot of them wrestling fans? Do they think they're going to make them wrestling fans? I remember that. When we watched WrestleMania, Logan Paul didn't do really bad. It was fairly good for a non-wrestling personality. He has some athleticism. But is have we come to this, that not only this is what they think will draw money at SummerSlam because all their guys are dead and not over, that the outside celebrities and media influencers are going to be the ones to sell tickets. And do we know yet that their social media audience gives two shits about especially bad wrestling, but wrestling in general. And this thing not was a train wreck because Miz turned on Logan Paul after the WrestleMania match that they won for no apparent reason. And the story came out where Logan Paul wanted to leave as the babyface. So he got dropped on his head by Miz after they won their tag match with no problems. And then they played that footage. And then they bickered with each other. And basically Miz is saying Logan Paul is a rookie in his sport. He put him over as being great at everything else. Whatever everything else that he's done is, he, he's boxed some people and he's on Twitter or whatever. But he won't accept... Logan Paul's challenge because he's not in Miz's class. And at that point, Logan ca Paul calls Miz so old man. What is fucking Miz like what, 37 years old? And he says, old man. Good God. Apparently, they go back and forth forever. Logan Paul determines or announces that he's going to host a show of his own next week in Madison Square Garden, so they're trying to kill New York City now. 
And this took forever. And finally, Logan Paul gets the crowd to chant tiny balls at Miz. And Miz rips his jacket open and reveals he's wearing a t-shirt that says, my balls are massive. And because of this horrible ball insult, the heel who was refusing to face the baby face changes his mind and accepts the challenge because his, the size of his balls were insulted in a comedic way. And then they get in a fight. <laughs> and suddenly, poor Tommaso Ciampa, who was the highlight of NXT and is an incredible physical specimen and an amazing worker and a believable guy, he goes to the main roster and they make him a mid-card flunky for everybody else that gets beaten five minutes every time. Well, he comes in and jumps Logan Paul from behind and both the heels start to beat up Logan Paul and Logan Paul just breaks loose from him and rolls out and walks off. And then they were so early on the live show because even though that... <laughs> fucking back and forth between them seemed like forever. It was only like less than 10 minutes. And so they had to send one of the girl interviewers in the ring to do an impromptu interview with the heels who were still in the ring because they had more time on the air and Logan Paul had already fucking bailed out and walked off and let the heels rough him up and get away with it. What the fuck? Talented guy, athletic guy, has a fan base beyond wrestling. So let's do this with him. This makes no sense. Uh, Everyone's a uh, child. The world of WWE is a world of adults who behave like children and think like children and act like children. So unfortunately, I'm not surprised, but the misuse of Logan Paul. And I'm, it's, it's like that. Whoever is writing this nonsense, and I know a lot of people, I'll blame Vince, blame Vince. Well, he doesn't come up with every word, and he doesn't come up with every fucking line, every sentence, blah, blah, blah. But they're writing for him. But they, Vince still knows how grown adults fucking argue and speak to each other. Does he? And I, <laughs> Does he? Well, he, he, he had a bunch of them on his program 20 years ago doing it. And that's why we're going to talk about these because the only saving grace now is that A&E has the new seasons going on of Biography and Rivals. We can actually see some WWF wrestling stars that were good at what they do and when the people gave a shit. It was, problem is it was 20 and 30 years ago, but we can see that now weekly on television for a little while longer. But... <sighs> I, I don't remember, as we'll talk about, Undertaker and Kane, their rivalry starting because somebody said to the other one that they had tiny balls. So this is what wrestling has turned into, and they expect people to watch Raw. And let me correct you, it didn't start because he told the world that he had tiny balls. It started because he was attacked by his tag team partner, and they get him back. He confronted him without any physicality, but he got the fans to chant tiny balls. However, the heel was prepared for questioning of his balls. For the questioning of the size, scope, and circumference. What about weight? Is it better if they're small, but they're dense, so they're heavier? 
or is it better you have bigger ones but they're not they're not that dense so they're kind of light you can kind of juggle them like little tennis balls well we'll find out when the pg-14 era begins when they start doing this on tv on the usa network but i saw the first segment i saw the last segment and that was enough i was ready for bed after that well, I'll tell you what you should have done, Brian, then. I'll tell you exactly what you should have done if you were ready for bed. Although, after you watch Monday Night Raw, I would think most people could go to sleep standing up. But if you wanted to be comfortable, then you should plop down immediately after Monday Night Raw on your brand new Helix mattress, the one that they have tailored just for your needs and specifications. Because, you know, Brian, our friends over at Helix Sleep, they don't just send out the same kind of mattress for anybody. They have different kind of mattresses for the way that you, the way that you sleep, the position, whether you're hot at night or you're cold at night, or whether you like firm or soft or whatever the case, they've got a mattress for you. And now you can go to one of those mattress stores. You've seen it, the mattress discount place. And you go in there and they've got testers. But you know the problem with those, Brian? You know the problem with testing a mattress in a public place? Who else has been on that thing? They've been laying there. Did they turn over on their side? Did their nose run? Did they turn over on their stomach because they wanted to see what it would feel like to sleep on their stomach? And then, you know, Mr. Johnson and his friends were in contact with the mattress, even if it was through a thin piece of cloth. Still, there's potential drippage. What about farting? farting you got somebody farting and and you don't know how many farts you're going to take home with you or lay on when you go to a mattress store you know and also they look at you funny for example before we found out about the helix sleep people brian when i would go into a mattress store to do a mattress test i would get greeted with rudeness at best because i remember one time i went in there i had my tray with cheeseburger, french fries, some wings on the side, but I didn't get the hot sauce, the messy stuff. I had dry rub and a Sprite Zero over ice, and I sat down and put my tray there. I started eating, and they got mad at me. They said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm testing the mattress. What do you mean? I said, well, I want to see how it feels like and how it holds the tray up when I eat dinner in front of the TV. They asked me to leave the store. And then another time, I came in, I brought Harley because I wanted to see what Harley thought of the mattress and whether she enjoyed the belly rubs on the mattress because she gets on her back for the belly rubs. They told me to get my dog off their mattress, which I thought was very rude because after all, if I don't want a mattress that Harley's not going to like, and you've got to test these mattresses for every activity. So there's the dog's belly rubs and there's eating dinner in front of the television. And boy, I'll tell you what, when me and Stace, when we showed up wearing our pajamas with a toy bag, well, they called the police. And that's the most important part of the mattress. Well, so why, why don't we talk about another mattress, a better mattress, one that could be shipped right to you without a man and his dog and a, Mr. Johnson and his wife and all this stuff without any yeah. of that appearing on, appearing, being on the bed leaking on the bed, whatever it may be, you can get a brand new bed, a brand new mattress. Well, it's, it's no secret that those secretions on those public mattress stores will give you some kind of mange. But anyway, the point I'm making is, and, and by the way, Harley got fleas off that mattress store mattress. 
But that's the point I'm making. If you go to helixsleep.com, ladies and gentlemen, then all you have to do is take their two-minute quiz for exactly how you like to sleep and what you like your mattress to be about, and they will match you up to the perfect mattress and ship it to your door for free so you don't need to go out there to these mattress stores and try eating or playing with your dog or engaging in intimate relations on those mattresses. You're going to get one custom designed for you and sent to your door, and then you can have fun with the unboxing and you don't even need help. And they've got a 10-year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. How in the world? Imagine how much sex, food, and belly rubs you can have on a mattress in 100 nights, and then if you still don't like it, they'll come and pick it up and they'll scrub it real good before they sell it again. Folks, and right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all the mattress orders and two free pillows just for our listeners. If you go to Helix Sleep, that's H-E-L-I-X, helixsleep.com slash J-C-E. That's the, that's the code. That's what you need to do. You need to slash that J-C-E and you'll get up to $200 off and a couple of free pillows. And everybody needs a couple of free pillows. You never need, never know when you're going to need to Cushion the blow of something to your head. Of course, we want to remind everyone that a very good portion of what Jim just said is not true. These are brand new mattresses, clean mattresses, fine mattresses, the best mattresses. Yes. That are sent to you. No one touches them except you. So everything you just heard. I touch each one they send out. You do not touch any of these mattresses. You just said you, you touch them. Not you, you the audience. Touching all the mattresses. The big you, not the you, you, the audience I'm talking about. How do you know I'm not the big you? You haven't visited that area. Yeah, big balls or tiny balls. Yeah, don't, don't insult my balls. We'll have to have a match at SummerSlam. Again, you're getting us all off target again. We're talking about Helix Sleep and... Great mattresses that the listeners should check out. Right? Yes, that's exactly right. Balls. All right, well, when you, uh, what's the promo code again? Let's do that before we wrap this thing up. Helixsleep.com slash JCE is what it is. That's right. And of course, when you wake up from Helix Sleep, you may want to watch something. And there may actually be some valuable WWE programming on TV. It may not be the wrestling. But biography on A&E has been pretty good so far this season, I think. The documentaries are great. And that's we will preface this by saying the same thing. I won't belabor it. But the production, the video, the, you know, the, the way the shows are put together, because obviously WWE has a hand in this, and uh, whoever the AEW side of the folks are, it's first-class stuff. Now, sometimes they rewrite history as we've mentioned but the look of the program and the work they put into it and the technical aspect is is great and also as i mentioned earlier in the program you get a chance to see when wrestling was over shit looked halfway good people were excited about it and now we know why they're still bringing these guys back in their late 50s because nobody can follow it and that's not as it's partially an indictment of the people that have tried to get in the business and have gotten a business over the last 10 20 years and and a lot of it 
is an indictment of what the company and companies, all the promotions, have turned this fucking business into. So I, I love this is the best WWE programming that we're going to see over the next couple months, however long the biography series and the rival series runs, just because they're showing us shit that was actually good and profitable and over. But I don't know if it's not detrimental to their current product for people to see this because it's a glaring slap in the face reminder that the modern shit sucks. And it's, and like I said, it's not just talent's fault. It's not just the promotion's fault. Everybody's had a hand in this. Having said that, let's talk about the Goldberg biography. Because I didn't know, you know, a lot about his growing up and younger life football career. I knew he played football, obviously. That's, you know, the Atlanta Falcons, and that was the connection, how he got into business. But, you know, since Goldberg is one of those guys that was made a massive impact but didn't have a very long career, so they were able to flesh this out with more childhood, more personal life, more of his wife and kids, more football stuff, because they're, how can you go two hours on a pretty much a three-year wrestling career plus guest appearances recently? His mother was a concert violinist. One That would be a trivia question nobody would get. And I thought from the open that they were going to make this a real tearjerker. And it was kind of a somber open, and they they had the the recurring theme of him sitting in the deserted old dilapidated movie theater watching him his life unfold on the screen in front of him. Did you... <laughs> Heyman, right at the open, it sounded like it was good. Heyman was going to be the the voiceover guy. Who's that? Liv Schreiber? Liv Schreiber. Liv Schreiber. I guess Liv would be his sister. That does the, like, you know, really somber and opens... Well, he's the best. He did all the HBO sports stuff for years. He was fantastic. Well, he's got competition now. Paul Heyman, if he's not the Leave Schreiber, he's the Garrison Keeler of wrestling documentaries. It just, it's, it, I mean, you can tell he works on this stuff and exactly what to say and how to say it, put people over, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we saw all the football highlights. It was weird seeing Goldberg with hair. And he made the statement numerous times on the program that he loved football and would have done that forever. He's a football player, but he had injuries. And he found wrestling through his accountant. <laughs> I've, you know, I guess it worked out all right for him in the end, but I don't know if most accountants said you ought to be a professional wrestler. I would get a new accountant. And let's talk about the WCW power plant for a second, because they showed brief footage of that training program, and they talked about the fact that Goldberg was taken to the power plant, given the basic bit of training, and then put on the fast track and put on TV because they needed something, and they saw they had something. <sighs> Where do we start? The whole power plant thing. And I think that's the point of this program is you got a little bit more sympathy for the position that Goldberg was put in. It's not like that anybody knew the wrestling business didn't know the position he was being put in, but 
a lot of the fans may have gotten a little more sympathy because the power plant was a shitty training program that produced nobody of any fucking quality whatsoever because they didn't teach them professional wrestling. It was that weird boot camp Marine drill instructor. We're going to run all of you off, even though you're already there. I can understand running people off, not smarting them up before they get in the business or before they get in a fucking training program or see if they've got what it takes the first couple of weeks. Right. Didn't they run off Batista? Yeah. (laughs) They ran off a lot of people because it was stupid because it was like going to school to be a doctor and you spend all your time washing dishes. And, And it was because Jody Hamilton, is. I know he's passed on. I'm not going to say anything bad about him. He was a nice person to me. I never had any problems with him. He was a great talent. The Assassins were a legendary tag team. Jody was a great promo. But the reason why Jody was chosen to head the training program was because of just his contacts with all the local wrestlers in Georgia. He had In the mid-80s, he had started Deep South Wrestling when all the territories went under. And it ran a year or two, and it didn't really work. And it it, there was, it was, this was not, I mean, it's not alone that wrestling, independent wrestling promotions were going out of business at that time period. But Deep South was not a good one, nor was it ever successful, nor did they ever get any buzz for anything. It was just a local independent that he got barely TV and... It ran for a while. And then... Wait, when did he show up in WCW again? Because he was in the booking committee meetings with you. That's right. Then by 89, Turner Broadcasting buys WCW and Jody comes in. Because again, they're they're doing research on who is in Atlanta, who's involved in wrestling. Jody was very articulate and was able to sell himself. I have all this experience and I've run my own promotion. They put him on the booking committee, the larger booking committee. When I was involved, and that's my firsthand testimony, Ric Flair was the booker. He used Kevin as his assistant. He put me on, basically do the paperwork and come up with some ideas every once in a while. The entire booking committee, because of Jim Hurd, also included himself, because Hurd had to be in those meetings where we didn't get anything done. Jim Barnett, because Barnett was the guy that Hurd had hired to tell him everything he was doing was right. Jody Hamilton, because Jody was in the office, he was in charge of getting the rings to the buildings and booking job guys for TV and working with the ring crew and miscellaneous stuff like that. And also, uh, uh, did I mention Jim Ross was there because he was being forced to work in the office at that point? That was the enlarged booking committee, but none of those people were ever actually booked anything because Flair and Kevin and I did it in the car or in the locker room or in the hotel when we were away from Jim Hurd. And in actually, Jody, by that point, had sleep apnea, and he used to have a cubicle, or I'm sorry, a corner office in, in um, CNN Center in the WCW offices but he kept going, falling asleep with the door open and everybody could hear him snoring all through the office area. So they moved him out to a cubicle with no walls in the middle where they thought he wouldn't go to sleep. And so then later on, 
They moved Jody out of the office entirely and put him in charge of the power plant. And again, guy's a great veteran, but now it's 1989 and his, you know, wrestling career, except for when he worked for himself, had ended 10 years previously. And he's nearing 60. And so he finds Dwayne Bruce because he already knew Dwayne Bruce from doing jobs on TV, and I'm not knocking Dwayne Bruce either. Now, a lot of fans don't know who Dwayne Bruce or Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker okay. is or was. Well, Dwayne Bruce was Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, who became the head trainer at the power plant. You see him in this Goldberg documentary. He's the guy screaming at people while they're doing squats, and they got the puke bucket out and everything. The reason why they called him Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker was because he and Dale Veazey, another local guy from Georgia, had started a tag team called the State Patrol, and they dressed up as Georgia State Patrol guys, right? And I don't remember what Dale's rank was, but Dwayne Bruce became Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker. So then Jody gives him the spot as head trainer at the power plant, Again, I'm not insulting Dwayne Bruce, but he was a job guy for WCW. Whenever he worked for WCW, he made appearances on local independent Georgia shows and he was worked on top or whatever, but he had never, ever been in a position in any wrestling territory or company of any size or extent to where he was used in any way. But he browbeats and yells at and makes the trainees to power plant do millions of calisthenics. And the point is the power plant was famous at that time in the inside the industry. And now that 20 something years has passed and everybody's seen who didn't come from there and who got run off from there. And that Goldberg was the only success story. And now they find out why it was a joke. It was a joke training program. And every once in a while, if somebody like Terry Taylor got heat, with the office, they'd send him over there because the power plant was in a different location than CNN Center down, downtown. And he'd try to kibitz with the guys, but it it was not a, a coherent training program for wrestling. They taught guys like trained chimpanzees how to do moves and how to stay in condition. There was no mental teaching. There was no, this is the psychology of wrestling. This is the history of wrestling. This is the purpose of wrestling. This is everything we taught at OVW, anything that you learn in any quality training program, they didn't do there. That's why <clears throat> Mark Merrow, Johnny B. Bad, learned how to be Johnny B. Bad and be Johnny B. Bad in a match for nine minutes. That's, you know, that's what they learned. And Bill DeMott carried that method of training that Jody liked when they started Deep South Wrestling again as an... WWE developmental program in what, 2002-ish, 3-ish, or whatever, and that thing burst into flames and fucking blew up on them. Because it was to the point where they, the WWE had to go down and get all of their equipment from the facility. They sent a truck overnight and were there first thing in the morning under cover of darkness to get the shit and pull out. And told Jody when they were grabbing the shit that they were closing the deal up. That's how bad they wanted to get away from that thing, because it was a fiasco. And there were stories that were not reported publicly that could have left them liable for other shit. Dale, so, Dale Vizi was Lieutenant James Earl Wright. 
That's right. He, almost James Earl Ray. James Earl Wright. And that was, by the way, that was on Georgia TV in 1989. That showed you where some people's heads were at that point. But anyway, back to Goldberg on the biography. So that's why he didn't know what the fuck. He knew how to do power moves and growl and scream. That was his natural talent. They did nothing to, to bring anything else out. So, and when he had his base there, his, you know, first match on TV against Bill DeMott, it was all slams and spears and stuff like that. And then they put him on the road and gave him an un undefeated streak. And when you listen to Goldberg, he's like, well, people had never seen a push like that before. What? This is, and it's not his fault. This is what this guy still doesn't know about wrestling because it wasn't his life. He had never been a fan. Nobody ever taught him and then they threw him out there. But no, there was a push like this hundreds of times in the history of wrestling. They just, people just didn't see it on national television. But hundreds of times in the history of wrestling down through the years, I would expect Big Wayne Munn probably got a push like this. When wrestling promoters got an attraction of a giant or a physical freak, or a, a star from another sport or athletic endeavor, a football player especially, because that lends itself because of the size and the badassery you have to have to be a football player. You take a guy in, a, in any territory, or in the old days before territories, just you take a guy, and you know he's going to be a gimmick. He can't really wrestle. That's why they had policemen in the old days to protect the champion that wasn't really a wrestler against the double crosses that still happened. And you push him with quick, decisive victories over starting small and then working up the card to people of increasing stature. And he shows no weaknesses until he gets to the very top main event guys. And if it's a baby face, then the, the heel has to cheat or have an advantage. If he's a heel, then the baby face that he's up, main event baby face he's up against, finally has to find some kind of weakness. But that's the way. And then you move the guy on. Because if you brought a gimmick in that can't work and that you're drawing specifically on their aura and their personality and how you're pushing them and smashing them over. You can't let him go any amount of time. It'll expose him, which they even said, Eric Bischoff, among others, said in the Goldberg bio, there comes a time they have to put time in. In the old days, once the gimmick had served its purpose, you moved it to another territory. So people get, didn't get tired of it and it'd still be over if it came back. But now there's no more territories. Now you can't just move a guy out. He has to stay there. And that was the same way 20 years ago. So now they're stuck with him. And of course, the political machinations behind Goldberg's booking and how they eventually killed the Golden Goose, which I think was Bobby Heenan's actual quote, that goes to show you that the promoter in this case, was it Bischoff? There were, the promoters were really TBS executives. They didn't know how to fucking keep this going. And Bischoff, of course, he's protecting Hogan because the Georgia Dome was, was 
addressed. As Hogan called and had the idea to do the job for Goldberg, purely in a benevolent manner, right? Did you get the... Remember, the real story was Hulk Hogan was not on the Georgia Dome card. Hulk Hogan was not announced. They knew they were going to have 40,000 people in the Georgia Dome, and Hogan was not figured in. And Hogan knew that the Turner Broadcasting bigwigs were going to be there in person to see that, and he needed to be in the main event. So, fuck the business. He's specifically wanting to impress Turner Broadcasting. So he inserts himself on the card in the main event and does the job for Goldberg in front of 40,000 people, not to get Goldberg over, but to put in the TBS executives' minds who didn't follow the day in and day out of the wrestling business and knew nothing really about anything else that was going on anywhere else. Well, there's Hulk Hogan, the guy we pay all this money to, to the point where every time we sell a Hogan t-shirt, we lose money. But he's got 40,000 people in the fucking Georgia Dome. So it's worth it. That was Hogan's mindset. Am I telling a lie, Brian Last? That is the way I always heard it. So, anyway. So now they've got Goldberg. He's been in the business for one year. He trained at the power plant, one of the worst McDonald's fast food wrestling schools of all time for three months, and he's the world champion and undefeated. And, you know, in that respect, I've talked about maybe was Big Bubba Rogers the biggest one-year prodigy ever, less than a year, nine months after he debuted on TBS television, he sold out Pittsburgh against Dusty and set an all-time record. And you got to think he was probably the best, biggest one-year prodigy in the territories, but Goldberg has that beat. And Goldberg's more than Nikita Koloff. Yes. Nikita was a great one-year prospect, but that was the year that Dusty was building the the Carolinas, and they didn't do the houses. He did the Great American Bash 85 with Flair. But traditionally, Nikita was, was a big draw for a short period of time, but I think Bubba beat him two years later. Anyway, uh, they did a huge segment on the Hogan match. And as I said, you know, the push that the guy got was pure wrestling. It had been done a hundred thousand times. And with Leviathan, when Batista got run off from the power plant and showed up at off of the Samoan school, that's when the WWF learned about him and sent him to OVW. And that's the same thing we did because it's a, it was the same situation. Goldberg was 31 years old, had never watched a, a pro wrestling match, shows up at wrestling school, already has injuries from football is a hell of a physical specimen, doesn't have any idea about what this business is or how to think about it. So what do you do? You take advantage of the strengths, you nullify the weaknesses, you smash him over, short, sweet. And it was the same thing with Batista, early 30s, injury prone, really didn't have any idea about the business, going to have a short window, let's do it. Of course, now... The short window that Goldberg had from 1997 to 2002 uh, has opened up again a couple times a year over the last few years, but nobody saw that coming. So then, and they did talk about working the streak in this biography. And that's when it started taking the, some, some of the steam out of it too, because 
fans that were following it would realize there hadn't been as many days in the week for him to have that number of matches since last week when we saw the number. And it just, it Mike Tanay initially was responsible for recognizing the streak and then they they took it out of his hands and killed it by working it. And then, <laughs> and then the final political machination, Nash ends the streak on Goldberg's birthday. That was perfect. And of course, there was umpteen million kinds of outside interference and finally hall uses a taser but they used a gimmick taser but goldberg wanted them to use a real one because at least he was smart enough to know then if goldberg goes down it has to look right but it didn't because they didn't and that's pretty much they don't say it on this show but that's what killed not only killed the myth of goldberg and wcw but also started them on the downhill slide business wise that led to the sale what year and a half later not even I mean, it was the misbooking of Goldberg, Russo coming in, and the damage that that television did to the fan base. I mean, there's a whole number of things that all happened within like a year and a half that, for everything good that happened to drive everything up, immediately brought everything back down to earth. And now on Biography, they had an hour and 10 minutes to go into the show, and he'd already lost to Nash. And I'm thinking, how the fuck? There's not that much left of his career. But then they, they, he even mentioned and this. You mentioned this also to me on the phone. This is probably the most honest uh, recounting of a career and a person that we've gotten on any of these shows from Goldberg. He knew he didn't know what he was doing, and he admitted it. And he, and he also acknowledged that they sent him out there unprepared. But he was honest about it. And that's the thing, after he did the job and the myth took the hit, he still, they had been teaching him what to do as he went along on the job. So now he's not undefeated, he's not the champion anymore, and he's got no idea how to take care of himself or get over on his own, because all he's done is what they've told him to do. And now he's got a main event matches with top guys that have some length to them. And here comes poor Bret Hart. And boy, they, what do you think? They say two sides to every story, and it's never been more obvious on a wrestling documentary that that is true because everything that Goldberg said about Bret Hart and everything Bret Hart said about Goldberg were both true. Goldberg said he would have wanted Brett to teach him that he looked up to Brett. It's Brett freaking Hart, right? Which I can believe that's true. And that he would never do anything intentionally to be reckless with a guy. And I believe that's true, but he didn't, he didn't know what fuck was going on. Cause he'd never, and he'd never wor probably worked with a guy that was going to, put as much into his match as Brett was. The guys that he'd been working with were probably just, let's get in and get out without Goldberg hurting me. But Brett was going to be, okay, this is, I'm Brett Hart. I'm going to have the, a great match with anybody. And Brett conversely said Goldberg never learned how to wrestle and treated him like a practice dummy. And nobody in WCW had ever called Goldberg out on that. And I can believe that too. He never did learn how to wrestle. 
I can believe nobody in WCW say anything to him about it because he was the golden boy. I think he probably probably did treat Brett like a practice dummy, but not intentionally, but just because that's the way that he had been working and nobody nobody shouted him down about it. So Goldberg had no idea of the concept of history of and the point of the business. He was never a fan. He was never taught psychology except as something happened. And then he was at the mercy of the people that were trying to take his spot, the Nashes and Hogan's and et cetera. And where Brett had said, I'll teach you and I'll help you if you don't hurt me. I don't think Goldberg meant to obviously meant to hurt him or thought he was being rough. I think he was just doing shit he'd been doing and nobody would ever bothered to fucking say anything about it. And it was very telling. I did not realize before the kick in that match that Brett did the figure four spot around the post and hit his head. And that makes even more sense because when Brett first came up with that spot, what he would do was he would have the referee out there on the floor trying to pry him off of the guy he was going to do the figure four to so that when he did the figure four and jumped up, the referee was right behind him. And as a natural reaction, it looked like would catch Brett and help put him down to the floor without him dropping on his head. And he didn't do that there. There was no referee. He told Goldberg, hold on to my foot. And you can see as soon as Goldberg puts his hand on his foot, Brett, okay, and goes up. And Goldberg took it right off because I think he was like grabbing, like, do I have it or I don't know what? Because who's ever put Goldberg at a figure four around the ring post ever before that? How many regular figure fours had he ever been in before that? Probably zero. Yeah. So Brett was expecting this guy to be able to do what had been called and what he'd been told to do, shit that he'd never done before and on the sperm of the moment that quick. And it didn't happen. And Goldberg was trying, but goddamn. I mean, you see, this is the guy that his pre-match thing is to bust his own head open, really shoot headbutt into lockers. So you think he's going to be fucking easy to work with? They, you know, so that's, that's the thing. When you bring an outside gimmick into the business and give it a monster push, you have to be aware of the the ways not to expose that push and not to imperil other people because of that push. So there, and then the kick came and then the, when he punched the limousine window out and fucking nearly bled to death because it was a real limousine window and he just decided to do that. He was given everything he had. He was making himself a nervous fucking wreck. And then in this program, they talked about, well, we, saw the writing on the wall with the AOL Time Warner merger. WCW is on borrowed time. There was no mention of the massive losses as a result of Bischoff and Shitstain and the rest of everybody's mismanagement and, you know, thinking when they were on top of the world that they were all rock stars. And remember Shitstain's famous quote. So what, what do you do when business goes down? Well, if we book it right, business will never go down. <laughs> I didn't know that quote, really. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he actually said that one time. I said, I said, you got all this shit going on, and you're hot-shotting, and 
Holly's said, what happens when business goes down? What are you going to follow? Well, if we do it right, business will never go down. Because there's been all these examples of not only wrestling promotions, but any entertainment genre in the history of history where you never had a lull in business. So anyway, there were no mention of the massive losses. It was all attributed to the AOL Time Warner merger. Vince buys WCW. And Goldberg sits home for two years because that was one of the reasons why WCW went out of business because these top guys had contracts that were guaranteed through Turner, not WCW. The, the, the guys that Vince picked up after the sale of WCW to the WWE were all the guys that were on regular wrestling contracts and those ended and they either went to the WWE or they went somewhere else, but they needed a job. But the Goldbergs and who else was it? Was it Nash and Hogan and Flair, even Flair, Flair was out for what a year. And somebody Dallas page is the only one page had one page and and Booker T I think took the buyout page and Booker T took the buyout because they wanted to wrestle. And the other guy said, because those contracts were made through Turner Home Entertainment and weren't on WCW's books, and they had to be paid even when WCW w- w- was out of business and owned by someone else and they didn't have anything to do with it, they still paid millions of dollars to those guys to sit at home and do nothing. That was the hidden bookkeeping that uh, they started to find out about when WCW lost $60 million in what one year, the last year they were in business and these payments were going to these other wrestlers and the naysayers and people who hadn't wanted wrestling in the Turner empire to begin with finally had a reason, had a way out. They couldn't sell it for the two years. It was selling out everything in sight. But once that everything went down and all these people were getting paid all this money and everything, they said, fuck it, let's get rid of it. And it took them two years to get all the wrestlers off their books. So anyway, and Goldberg, he, he liked, he didn't fit in the locker room in the WWE with the other boys because then it was more of an example of a gimmick going into a regular locker room. All those guys had been in the business. They'd trained. They'd paid their dues. Well, that wasn't it. I mean, there was a lot of resentment because of the money he was getting, which he deserved. That's where I'm going. They've trained, they've paid their dues, they've been wherever the fuck for however long, and they're making X dollars, and here comes Goldberg that had had everything handed to him, not saying he's a horrible person, and he didn't beg for people to hand him everything, but they did. They handed him the push, they handed him the belt, they handed him the big money. Now he's been sitting at home for two years, getting big money from Turner to do nothing. And now he comes into our locker room and they're going to push him again. So those guys didn't like him and he didn't fit in because he wasn't one of the boys. He'd never intended to be. So he stayed a year and left because they didn't get Goldberg and Goldberg didn't like them. And remember, they tried to make Goldberg one of the boys. They didn't understand either. And they had him doing goofy shit to try to bring his personality out. Just saying they would, you know, Bruce, when I first found Rhino, I said, sign this fuck. He's 19 years old. Well, he has no personality. He's fucking 19. He'll get one. But with Goldberg, this was his personality. Hit the ring, snort, scream, spear somebody, jackhammer, hand up, 
leave. They couldn't figure that out. They had him wearing a blonde gold dust wig or something. So he leaves, and the the WrestleMania 20 match with Brock was the perfect thing to leave on for to never come back to the wrestling business because they booed him out of the building because they knew that both the guys that they were leaving. And honestly, if they'd have known the real story, they would have probably cheered Goldberg and booed Brock because Brock really did dislike the wrestling business and didn't want to be a part of it, no matter where it was or who it was. Whereas Goldberg just didn't like the WWF and wanted to move on. He liked the fans, still likes the fans. So, but anyway, they booed them both out of the building and he went home, got married, had kids, a big personal life segment because there's not a lot of career left. And he was away for what? 12 years, 13 years, whatever it was. And finally just wanted to come back so his son could see him wrestle because he never had. And, and you know, this, they didn't really touch on the fact, and I think it's important, that despite all things considered being a star for a brief period of time, and despite being gone for so many years, the fans never forgot about him. The fans never stopped chanting his name when Ryback was starting to get a push. <laughs> Remember, the fans were chanting Goldberg at him because they yeah. saw him as a ripoff Goldberg. You know, there have been stories that Tony Khan may have been interested in Goldberg in the early days of AEW. There's a there reason for There have been rumors, that. rumors of that, but they were quickly shot down by an NDA. <laughs> but the point is, he was someone that, despite not being around, never went away. Well, you can understand Tony being a fan of Goldberg, if indeed he might be, because he's a fan of all late 90s wrestling television. But with the fans, again, it was a perfect push. It was different. It was unusual. Were what they were seeing at the time. And Goldberg was the perfect person to do it. If they'd tried to do the same streak, winning streak, quick victories with almost... Nobody would give a shit because he's the shits. If you if, if they'd given the Undertaker gimmick to somebody else besides Mark Calloway, we wouldn't be talking about it now because it'd have been the shits. It's the right person with the right push at the right time with the right exposure, and that's what Goldberg had, and that's why the people didn't forget it. And honestly, the nostalgia factor helped in that people remembered what they wanted to remember. They wanted to remember the push. They wanted to remember the streak. They wanted to remember the jackhammer and the breathing the fire and the smashing the limo or whatever. They didn't want to remember Goldberg getting beat with a taser. They didn't want to remember Goldberg wearing a blonde wig. So him going away and being gone, they remembered the good shit because that's what they liked. And they forgot about the bad shit. And then when he comes back 15 years later and he looks close enough to the, because I mean, we all change, but my God, where do you see? And we see what he goes through to stay in that condition. He's had multiple injuries. He's got painful body parts, but he still looks enough like Goldberg. And now the wrestling business has changed to where even the main event guys don't have to go out and actually have a match and know how to do things because the people have now come to from all the sloppiness and the amateur bullshit 
now they've come to accept when top guys get in the ring and just three spears and four choke slams, big move match, and it's over with, and they think that's good and they accept it. So his matches now that he's 20 years older get over better with all of the modern fans than they than they did when he tried to wrestle guys like Bret Hart and couldn't because he didn't know how to do a headlock takeover. He could do a hell of a jackhammer on a 500-pound man, but hip toss, oh shit, what's that? So he's more valuable, and also because of the dearth of names and money-drawn talent now and that all the legends have to be brought back, I would say that Goldberg is more more important now to the box office and to the uh, pay-per-view or to the program in general when he comes back for the WWE over the last few years, maybe even than he was on the first run because, yeah, he got over, but you still had Hulk Hogan, you still had Nash and Hall and the NWO, you had Sting, you had Flair, you had all those fucking... The whole roster was filled with Hall of Famers up and down the card. So, <laughs> and it looks like he's kind of figured out more about the business now. At least he knows that he didn't know a lot of shit to begin with. And Well, he's with Heyman. And honestly, there's a I reason why Heyman was in this yeah. thing. And Heyman is so smart. And that match they showed the clips of, one of my favorite matches that went like less than five minutes ever. Him and Brock, when he came back, and he yep. surprised everyone by beating him. It was so perfectly put together, even though it was short. To me, it's one of the most brilliant matches I've ever seen, and to me, it reeks of Paul Heyman in a good well, way. That, Not reeks sounds like bad. It reeks well, Paul Heyman in a good way. It, it's dripping with Heyman. Yeah, like with Roman Reigns, with Brock Lesnar, with Goldberg, power, and Roman can do more, and he does, but short matches, power matches, the big moves couple surprises, get the fuck out. That's Heyman's deal for those guys, and it works. And I just wonder if they realize that A&E played Brock Lesnar getting squashed like a fucking pimple two weeks before SummerSlam <laughs> by a guy that's not on the show. Uh, but anyway, so then he came back, and he squashed Brock, and he got in the Hall of Fame, and he's finally learned to appreciate wrestling in the end. But that was the uh, the Goldberg. But he's genuinely happy to be remembered. He loves his son. He likes the fans. I don't have any animosity toward Goldberg like I would for some asshole who'd been pushed to the moon and didn't appreciate it, a la the Ultimate Warrior. Because you never heard the Ultimate Warrior say, actually, I was the shits and had no idea what I was doing. But all these guys put me over and it was a bad spot for me to be in. And let's face it, Goldberg was better than the Warrior ever got to be. But at least this guy, he knows what they did to him now, and he knows what happened, and it seems like it's all good in the end for him. And, you know, we've, we've learned a few things about Miss. He was teased and tormented for being Jewish when he was a kid. Tell me this, Brian Last. I am an expert in verbal combat and i don't know what how to make fun of somebody for being jewish what am i going to tell you? you 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 got some really weird holidays 
Well, you're not ignorant. That's one of the reasons you're not good at uh, making fun of Jewish people for no good I don't. I, I wouldn't know where to start. This was, I thought, really great. Uh, let's go with what you just brought up. Nice to have a world champion was Bar Mitzvahed. I'm happy about that. But I thought this opened we, up. We've, we've had a few world champions that were bar-roomed. <laughs> That's exactly right. I thought it was really nice to see Goldberg in this light. It was really insightful to hear his thoughts throughout the process. And I thought we've seen a lot of outsiders come into wrestling and not be like Goldberg was here. I mean, he really, I was blown away by just how much, yeah, you know, I really didn't understand the business. And yeah, I did. Like he was very forthright with a lot of the things you would expect a person being profiled to hide or not want to necessarily talk about or be as open about. The Bret Hart thing was weird for me because I love Bret Hart. He's my favorite. And I like Goldberg. You know, when I used to advocate for people for the Hall of Fame, he was one of the names I always picked for various reasons. And you watch that, and it's like you said, you see both sides. And I feel awful for Brett, because I love Brett, and I wish we got more Brett. The industry would be better if Brett had five more years, yeah. or whatever. And the figure four thing, you know, after he was saying it, and you actually watch his face when he hits the ground, you know, you understand where he's coming from. And when you see the slow-mo of that kick, it's fucking brutal. He got it from the back and the front within a 10-minute period, and that, you know... And Goldberg, Boom, that was it. And Goldberg didn't know what he was doing, and he all but said that. And I don't think for one second he intentionally hurt Bret Hart. That's not to say he didn't hurt Bret Hart, and he shouldn't yeah. apologize for hurting Bret Hart. And I believe, as Bret said, cost me $3 million a year for four years or whatever the fuck it was. And of all the people in the world that Bret has been really mad at and forgiven, I mean, come on. You forgave Shawn Michaels and Vince. You're not going to yeah. forgive Goldberg? I, I don't think he yeah. did it intentionally, and... You can tell it's something that bothers him, and he's a very honest and open guy from what we saw here. The fact that they addressed it in this, and they had Brett's side of it too, tells you how much it bothered Goldberg that this story's out there, that Brett still talks about this. And again, I understand Brett's side also. And I, also, Brett making up with Sean and Vince, he knew them for years. He had a long relationship, positive and negative. I can see that happening. I can see him just a cursory glance at Goldberg, muscle guy, football player, outsider. You know, I'll try to do what I can. And then he fucking gives him brain damage. And he has no hope so, too, because think about Goldberg before Brett got there or after Brett got there even. Goldberg wasn't, and I'm not even saying this would have been the answer in 1997 or 98. Goldberg wasn't sitting in the locker room talking with Flair and Piper about things that worked in the right. past. He was embraced by other top guys, whether they were going to use him to help themselves or whether they just didn't know how to tell a top guy proper advice. But Hogan and Hall and Nash, and I'm not saying they're all the same person. Everyone has their own objectives. But I don't think Goldberg, from the moment he got there, really had that person that could sit him down and explain. If he had had Heyman then, everything would have been different. Oh, my God. Well, he would have known how to refund... Turner Broadcasting's plane tickets, I'll tell you that. Uh, but no, somebody like Heyman would have helped him immensely early in his career being the brain in the corner to when he got lost or if he needed help or just critiquing afterwards or whatever the case. That would have helped immensely, but, you know, we are where we are. 
But he's a nice, seems like a nice guy. I've never met Goldberg, never seen him in person one second in my life. He seems like an incredibly nice guy. He seems like a very honest guy. By the way, he seems like he had a great family. I was very really impressed with his wife. And um, I like his reason for coming back to wrestling. He wanted his son to see this once. That's pretty cool. And boy, when his son was in the ring, his son's face was like, oh shit, get me out of here, Pop. Yeah, I don't know about his sh- <laughs> I don't know why his son ripped his shirt off. <laughs> that hasn't been explained exactly. <laughs> he just, he lost it. He went crazy. But, uh, but anyway, I'm looking, uh, except now we have a one week uh, hiatus on the biography. Um, oh, my drywall must be dry. Is that Can what we tell? hear? Is that the banging that's we what, hear? That's where my drywallers are back at it. Wow, it sounds so dry. Congratulations. Well, thank you. That's because it's <laughs> it's drier than nuns, twat, I'll tell you. Oh. But uh but anyway, we're gonna take a brief hiatus from the biography series because next week, two hour biography on the Bella twins. Oh, come on, you gotta watch it. No, no, no. Please, please, no, please, no, please, no, please no, no. gotta review that one. That's one people want to hear you review. What the hell could they say? What that's, the hell are they going to say in that thing? That's what I'm saying. Okay, we're, we're doing a documentary here, a series on the history of aviation. So next week, we're going to have two women from Cleveland that flew a Delta flight one time to Des Moines for a wedding. What the fuck? Will John Laurinaitis be in the documentary? I hope he makes the final cut. And then maybe they can do an update. And the divorce hearings have been scheduled for... But but yeah, next week, a biography on the Bella Twins. Oh, you got it. Come on. It's so much... It'll be good. It'll be good because you'll lose your mind, but not in a way that'll make you mad. No, it'll make me mad. You think it'll make you mad? Because I like these shows, and I'm saying there are so many great wrestlers down through history that they could choose as a topic for the precious little time that they have. What is this, a six-episode season last year was six or eight or whatever and they're using up one on the bella twin it can't even be a top female wrestler someone that you know we might want to trish stratus was a big deal at one point in time yeah but then they'd have to show clips of what mcmahon did to her on tv oh well well i don't how about sherry martell she deserves a little goddamn recognition. Absolutely, and WWE would probably want to avoid the end of her life, and that may prevent them from focusing on Sherry Martell. The All Bellas, right, the Bellas are there, and they're retired, and I think the show is based around retired people. And retired from what? From being Bellas on WWE TV. They're still Bellas, I guess, in other and programs. I, but I've seen them. They were on Ridiculousness one time, and they brought them out WWE wrestlers. I'm like, what the, f- how loose has this definition gotten now? Please watch anyway. it. Please, please. I want to see them in training. What the hell are they going to talk about? Where did they train? Was it OVW or was it? Oh, 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 don't you know, don't after you, you ever after blame you. that on me. After you. After I don't, no, I don't actually, I don't remember ever hearing them in conjunction with OVW. And even if I was gone, and even if Danny was closed up in his office trying to ignore everybody, between Rip Rogers and, and a few other people, they would have learned something. No, they're at a they, Florida Championship Wrestling. That, oh, there you go. So I can't take any responsibility, nor can the city of Louisville. 
I mean, here's a, you know, that was at a time when Laurinaitis, interestingly enough, ending up their father-in-law, was looking through lingerie catalogs and, and calling models agents and signing them to developmental contracts. And people think I'm making that up. And no, I'm not. We've said this before. It was the God's honest truth. He sent us a couple in OVW, and one of the girls had a fainting spell after running the ropes. Uh, and everybody was laughing at him. And everybody thought he was a fucking idiot. And that was before he signed the wrong one-legged wrestler. There was only two. He managed to get the wrong one. <laughs> and that was obviously before anything that he's paid money to cover up that I'm not going to go into. Uh, but so we got uh, the Bella twins, two girls who wanted to start a makeup company and figured we'll be stars on wrestling television to do it. And they're going to do two hours on A&E on them. <clears throat> Is it two hours? They're two-hour programs. Maybe they'll show half an hour of Mighty Mouse reruns in the middle just to pad it out a little bit. Maybe we'll get to see some of the home life. Brian Danielson at home. Uh, the other one used to date John Cena. And now she's, I think, married to some civilian. Who was it? Who was it that told one of them wrestling ability is not sexually transmitted? Who had that line? That was a good one. It is very good. Which, you know what? I forgot about this. Will they address in the documentary what John Cena proposed to her at WrestleMania? And then that never happened. What did he propose anyway? Marriage. Oh. I thought he's done an interview saying they split up because he just didn't want to get married. He literally proposed to her in the ring at WrestleMania. That's one of them I didn't watch. All right. Well, we'll see if you watch the Bella documentary. And of course... If you really have so much of a problem with the Bellas in this documentary, it may not be good enough for you to not watch your TV or... I gotta go somewhere. Leave the room. You may have to get out of the house. That's right. I may have have to leave town. Should I start booking my trip now? Let's see, Sunday night, 8 o'clock Eastern. I need to be at least 150 miles away. You know what I need to do, Brian? I need to have Black Beauty checked out. Make sure the maintenance has been done. Make sure everything's humming. Because I may have to hit the highway. Roll on down the highway, get on the interstate and keep on going to get as far away from television as possible to avoid the documentary on the Bella Twins. But now I'm just thinking, it's been a while, Brian, as you know, since I've driven any long distance and I haven't done all of the the maintenance and the fix-ups on Black Beauty and I may need to do that. I'm going to go have to, I'm going to have to look at the Conglurgal Illustrator. You know, the Conglurgal Illustrator is the thing that makes your GPS run. And they've got one of those at rockauto.com if you need one. I'm going to have to sort through everything and make sure that my car is in the peak of condition to get me away from these bad television programs. And if you want to do the same, folks, all you got to do is log on, as they say, to rockauto.com. They've got all the parts for your car or truck, motorcycle, bicycle, unicycle, tank, amphibious vehicle, or other motorized conveyance. It's amazing. No brick and mortar store here with just a few items. No, as we've mentioned, they have an entire clear plexiglass building. Also, there's there's a little bit of, of Elmer's glue in there, but no brick and no mortar. And it's on a South Sea Island in the Pacific. It's over 800,000 square feet. That's why they've got one of every auto part that has ever been manufactured in the history of the world 
available to the person who needs it. Of course, if two of you need the same thing, there could be a fight. However, millions and millions of parts, it doesn't matter what you need. You go to rockauto.com. They've got it. They've got it cheaper than all these chain outlets. They will deliver it to your door. As a matter of fact, you just order one of those parts next day or two. Guy knocks on your door. He's got the cute little rockauto.com cap on, cute little rockauto.com logo on his shirt. They wear shorts like the UPS guys. I don't know. They don't have sexy legs. Some of them need to shave. But nevertheless, that cute little delivery man is right there handing you your framistat or your squidgen or your bumfuck, anything you need for your car. Your bumfuck? Your bumfuck. See, that's a thing that goes onto your bum to keep it from getting fucked up. Your bum fuck. I don't know. I, I've named no, all you the don't. Auto parts. No, you don't. I've named all the auto parts that I know what the fucking name of them are. The, the thing, Jing, the Framistat, and the Focalube. Nevertheless, if you need a part, get it at rockauto.com. And when you go there, and buy the, if you're planning on buying a car in the future, get some extra parts for it just in case you'll have them on hand. You know these things don't last like they used to. And if you write JCE in their How Did You Hear About Us box, they will know we sent you. They will not give you any kind of discount because they're already cheap, but at least they'll know that you have good friends. All the parts your car will ever need with amazing selection and reliably low prices, that's the folks at rockauto.com. Well, Jim, I know the listeners are waiting to rock on with some questions, but I think we do have a few more things that we watched, and we will have questions. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. But (laughs) after Biography, there are two more WWE shows airing each and every Sunday night. The last one, I don't think you and I have bothered with at all, nor will. No. But the Rivals show, I'm about to call it Rivalry again. The Rivals show aired again this week, focusing on The Undertaker and Kane feud. Yes, and remember last week I'd said, well, they advertised those, and one of them is going to be the incomparable, immortal feud between Stephanie McMahon and Brie Bella. I said, we're going to have to skip one of those. The Bellas have something on the A&E producers now, I guess. Uh, But this episode was on the Undertaker and Kane rivalry, and obviously I was there for that, and involved in part of it so i was interested and also you know despite what especially uh mayor jacobs has been saying in public lately i always thought a lot of glenn when he was just glenn and kane before he became a politician and revealed he was a lunatic so and and again these programs are better than the WWE's modern day wrestling program so to see the good wrestling and find out more about the wrestlers you like to to watch, you got to watch the documentaries. And I, the early part of this was somewhat lifted in truncated, how you like that word, truncated version from the Taker biography because they had to tell you who The Undertaker was briefly to make this program as a standalone make sense. And so, the, and all these talking heads, I mean, they're all A&E WWE productions. So, all the talking heads they got to do multiple comments on multiple subjects. That's why you're seeing a lot of the same people pop up on different programs. And that's understandable when 
you know, you're doing a variety of topics, same production company and, and shooting everything, all the raw footage at around the same amount of time, around the same time period. I love the footage. I love hearing the guys talk. I love the production of these programs. But again, they do somewhat rewrite history. So on this one, instead of everybody should watch this, if you like Undertaker or Kane or, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, especially WWF. Instead of just going blow by blow on the program, I thought we'd talk about some of the things they left out on this one, because as soon as they've established who the Undertaker was, and then they've got Bruce talking about, of course, he had a brother. And enter Kane, right? And it was Bruce's idea for Undertaker to have a brother. I'm not and never have denied that. And, you know, Bruce was wrapped up. At, uh, he loved Undertaker. He loved Mark as a person, loved the Undertaker gimmick. He was the original manager, as we heard on the biography. So he was invested in wanting not only to do his job, which was, you know, come up with good shit for the program, just like mine was, but also he's invested in that Undertaker gimmick. So, and he was very passionate. I think that's how he sold Vince on it. He was very, and you could tell with his comments, he's very passionate about the Undertaker's brother being Kane, the first man to commit murder, blah, blah, blah. And the problem was with this documentary, and I know they've only got an hour on this and they can't go into everything, but they didn't go into the fact that they had almost ruined Glenn Jacobs' career and Vince was on the verge of firing him before Kane came up. And it's been a few years since I've told that story, but for the sake of the newer listeners, older cult members, please bear with me on some of this. But every, I would think everybody in the pantheon of bad gimmicks remembers Dr. Isaac Yankum and or the fake Diesel. If you didn't see them, if you didn't experience them in real time, at least you've heard about them and people still to this day mock uh, a, a lot about those things. I was still in Knoxville when Vince gave Glenn the Isaac Yankum thing. We, they had the match. Undertaker and Kane, Undertaker and Glenn, Unibomb, had the Smoky Mountain Wrestling match August 4th of 1995 It's at my Super Bowl of Wrestling. And that was obviously meant to be Glenn's audition. Taker loved him from the start, saw tons of, you know, uh, uh, potential. But then when... Vince gets hold of him. I've said this before. I don't know it for a fact, but I bet you Vince had a dentist appointment that he didn't appreciate or like or have a good time at. And he calls me on the phone. He was thrilled. And Vince McMahon only called me on the phone when I wasn't up there working for him directly. I think three times. And this encompasses all of OVW and all of uh, the uh, Smoky Mountain years, everything, like three times. And one of them was to just be thrilled about the gimmick that he had given Glenn Jacobs. He said, he's going to be an evil dentist. And my fucking heart fell in my stomach. Dr. Isaac Yankum. And I, oh, God. And then I saw it on TV. He even had the he had the 
vignettes they did. Remember Lawler and the doctors? Because it was Lawler's dentist is how he's introduced. The vignettes in the dentist office and Isaac Yankum has the rotten teeth. Sort of a takeoff on Richard Keel and Jaws. Or Jaws and James Bond. And, you know, the whole evil dentist thing. Vince actually had a VHS of those vignettes done and sent down to me. He was so over the moon about it. And it was bloody fucking rotten. And how long, do you remember how long did Isaac Yankum last? A couple months, three months at the most, maybe? Maybe. It was the build-up to SummerSlam, right? Well, God, I've put that part out of my mind. Oh, no, it wasn't SummerSlam. No, it wasn't SummerSlam, because by, by that point in time, he was about to be fake Diesel. No. So it was... What? He was Isaac Yankum first, then fake Diesel. Yes, but su- which SummerSlam were you talking about? No, I'm wrong about SummerSlam. Okay. Well, there but I'm saying the summer of 97, he was he was already he had already been SummerSlam 96, he had already been Isaac Yankum and I believe he was about to be the fake Diesel. If I'm not mistaking my years. But the point being Isaac Yankum didn't last very long. So then they've got Glenn, and they're oh, we and Jim Ross was a big proponent of his, and Bruce was, and I was. Vince wasn't seeing it because now his gimmick that he liked didn't work. So now he's getting that yeah feeling. But then the fake Razor and Diesel came up, and the only reason that they made Glenn the fake Diesel because he's the only one they had that they could do that was that tall, and that came about. I've told this story. We had a writer's meeting at Vince's house and it broke up and I went home and the next day I flew out to Oklahoma because I was still managing Vader because this was 1996. And I think we did Oak City and then on a Saturday morning or whatever, I or Saturday I went into Tulsa and went in the building and all the boys had watched whatever was live wire that morning, whatever program was on Saturday morning. And they're running up to me because I'm a member of the creative committee. What Razor and Diesel are coming back. I'm like, what are you fucking talking about? They announced on TV this morning, Razor and Diesel are coming back from WCW. I said, that's, that's insane. That's not going to happen. They're on, they're under contract. What are you talking about? Well, it was announced. So I get on the phone. I call fucking Bruce. Uh, Bruce, the guys are, I'm here, the guys are asking me, Hall and Nash are coming back? No, not Hall and Nash, Razor and Diesel. I said, what are you fucking talking about? Sometime after we left, in the 24-hour period, we left the writers' meeting, and before the Livewire episode aired on Saturday morning, Vince had decided... Well, Razor and Diesel are my gimmicks. I created them. I've got those names trademarked. I'm just going to make two other guys Razor and Diesel. And Well, can I ask a question? Go uh, ahead. Because I don't know the answer off the top of my head, and you may not either, but was this right around a period of time, too, that he was suing WCW because of Scott Hall, that he was doing too much of Razor on TV? I think so. I think so. And that, and he probably, okay, well, I'll just put them back on my TV, and I've got it copyrighted, blah, blah, blah. But the point, they found... Old Rick Bogner, the guy from Canada, to be Razor. And he wasn't a bad Razor, but it was obviously a rip-off copy and we're never going to get over. But 
Glenn was, and that's where the, the five moves of doom came from. They told me, they said, okay, go to the studio, get in the ring and teach these guys how to be Razor and Diesel. Well, Rick Bodner had already been working for a while and Razor Ramon did a lot more shit. So that was easier and he was fine. But I watched numerous Kevin Nash diesel matches that I got from the studio on tape. And I wrote down all the moves. Knee in the corner, back elbow in the corner, jackknife powerbomb, big boot, choke slam, hair flip. And I added the hair flip to make it more than the five moves of doom. And that thing sucked too because the fans were insulted that, you know, we expected them to believe, you know, or, or to buy this shit. And that flopped also. And at that point, I was in a writer's meeting, and Vince actually said these words. I hate it about Glenn Jacobs, but he just doesn't have the killer instinct. Probably going to have to let him go. And what the fuck? Ah! And, you know, when he would get that way, you couldn't talk him out of it because he'd made up his mind, but uh, fortunately, Kane had to be seven feet tall like his brother. And that's what Vincent will give him one more chance. And the reason why that Glenn was not impressing anyone was not because of anything that he was doing wrong. It was because he had been put in two gimmicks, in two positions that not only did he know was rotten, but that had nothing to do with him. He didn't know how to fucking be a wrestling dentist. He obviously didn't want to act like Kevin Nash light under another name. And he was uncomfortable and he was embarrassed in some cases to be out there, but just uncomfortable. And that's what was preventing him from showing what he could do. And bear in mind when he debuted as Kane, he'd been in the business, not quite four years. And the time that he was signed to the WWF, in between those gimmicks, they just left him off because they didn't have anything to do. So he had very little experience, but he was determined and wanted to do something. And I had to sit down and tell him. I it's Sometimes when Vince would say shit about guys, I wouldn't go tell them because, you know, Vince blows hot and cold sometimes. But with that, I said, Glenn, he's saying you need the killer instinct or you're out of here. And I know it's because you haven't had anything to work with, but now this is the deal. And you need to make this work, and he did. Um, Paul Bear was great in teasing it. And when you when you go back and and look at at Paul's heel stuff that he was doing when he turned on Taker and with Kane and everything, before it just got all they rewrote the backstory a hundred times. Paul Bear was great. I loved Percy's shit because you it was preposterous, but yet you could believe him because he was kind of preposterous as a person. I'm not saying anything bad. I'm saying that he was a character, as Mama Cornette would say. Percy was. So if you knew him in person, it wasn't that far-fetched. Anyway. And he really was a big part of this whole documentary, even though he wasn't there. I mean, every clip they showed, he was in the middle of. It's because he was the... He was he was the the thing that that held them together. He was the common thread. Paul Bear had always been at Undertaker's side, carried the urn that gave him his power or whatever. Then 
you know, when he turns on Undertaker, because now we find out that he's been responsible for Undertaker not knowing his brother was alive and blah, blah, blah. And I know this is preposterous, right? But a lot of things are preposterous when you get the guys that can carry it off. It becomes more posturous and less preposterous. Some more rewriting history. Sean has gone in modern times with the theory or the, the story that, well, yeah, we wanted more room in the cage to do some stuff. That's the way Vince sold it to them because Vince was concerned. Well, they won't like a change in the cage. I said, from that big blue fucking thing that kills everybody that runs into it, I'm sure they'll be thrilled. But the, I've told this story before, so I'll not linger on it. But we were presented with a situation where what Vince McMahon wanted was for Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker to wrestle in the main event of the pay-per-view in October in St. Louis for the title. The Undertaker would not win. Shawn would go on to the following month's Survivor Series and what Vince thought, well, not for the title there, but Shawn would beat The Undertaker and then Shawn would go on to win the title from Bret Hart at Survivor Series in November. So Sean and, and Taker is the main event of the pay-per-view where the heel's going to go over, especially over the Undertaker, and Undertaker is not going to come back and get any rebuttal on Shawn Michaels. So there has to be a way to lead Undertaker away from that situation. That's where Kane comes in. We've been teasing it. Kane will make his debut. He will cost the Undertaker the match against Michaels. Michaels will go on to win the title the following month on at the Survivor Series from Brett, we thought. And Undertaker has a reason for not continuing after Shawn Michaels and still not looking like a pussy because he's got other things on his mind. That was the deal. How do we how do we make that so nobody looks bad and we get Shawn and Undertaker both into their new programs out of this? So it, it, since Sean and Taker had been going back and forth over the period of time they'd been there, this needs to be a blow-off match, and Kane needs to make an impact. That's when Vince had said cage match, and that's when I said, well, since we've had a bunch of cage matches, and I didn't say to Vince this, but I always hated the WWF cage matches because escape the cage out the door, over the top. Well, that's the stupidest thing that's ever been done in wrestling because when you haven't escaped the cage match, there's no reason to have the cage. The cage was made. The cage was invented. The cage was popularized. No way in, no way out. We're going to settle it one-on-one. -on -one. Somebody's got to win. WWF cage matches because they just, they just sucked. I said, what about this, Vince? Let's change the method of the cage match because I said, since Kane is going to come in, we've already established that you can get in and out of our cages. What about if you give them a cage where the whole idea is it's impossible for anybody to get in or out until a winner is declared? It's going to be a showdown. And he goes, he raises the eyebrow. He's intrigued. And all I did was I stole a couple of, researched a couple of different kinds of cage matches. The cage in Memphis they used in the mid to late 80s that was so big it didn't set on the apron of the ring. It went all the way around the ring, and you could fight outside on the floor inside it. 
you could come off the top rope, whatever, because it was bigger. And that's the reason they did that. Cage in Memphis was because that's when they had Tommy Rich hide under the ring and come out in the Austin Idol-Jerry Lawler match. Fuck Lawler. They shaved Lawler's head. They needed the cage to be bigger so that Tommy could come out from under the ring because nobody had thought of, nor did they have the budget to, at that time, cut a hole in the fucking ring and crawl up through that, right? It also meant the fans had to climb a higher cage when they tried to get in. I was about to say it also when they were shaving Lawler's head and the people were riding and trying to kill the heels, they had farther to fucking climb up to get in there. And I researched from the war games, I said, put a roof on it. Because that way, even if somebody climbs up, they can't get in or out. And Vince is still intrigued. But how then, how does Kane make a difference? That I researched from Kevin Sullivan's booking in Continental Wrestling in Knoxville in 19, I think it was Christmas night of 1987, would have been. They debuted Doug Furness, the world's strongest man, University of Tennessee football star. To save the baby faces who were getting slaughtered in the cage, he came out and ripped the door off the hinges. That was Doug Furness's debut in wrestling. And that was a thing that I had put in my mind that I said, one of these days, I'll be able to use that, not in Knoxville, because everybody would have seen it. So I pitched that. Kane comes out, jerks the door off the impenetrable cage, becomes a monster, you know, gives Undertaker his own move and leaves, and Sean pins him. Sean goes on to Brett. Now Undertaker's busy with Kane. And that got everybody out just in, into the directions they needed to go just perfectly. And so, again, Vince was like, well, I think they'll like the change in the cage. I said, I'm sure they will. So I guess that Vince went and sold Sean and Taker saying, hey, guys, you can come off the top and you can fight outside and you can have more room. But they didn't have any idea of what the fuck the cage match was going to be until Vince told them because we just thought of it. It was me and Vince and shit staying in the room. And I think Bruce was still there at that point because he was about to be moved over to the office in talent relations also again. So, and that's what happened. And that's, you know, the match that came off and it, it was a brilliant you know, introduction to Kane and everybody did what they were supposed to do for once perfectly and without argument in Michael's case because he was winning. But then when they, when Kane showed up, you, well, you saw the clip where Glenn said that he and Mark were thinking Jason Voorhees for what Kane would look like. And actually he meant Michael Myers because Jason Friday the 13th, he just, he didn't really have a look. He was down at the bottom of the fucking river and came up and pulled, or lake and came up and pulled everybody down, right? Well, he didn't get the hockey mask until the third movie. The second movie, he was kind of a freak in the shadows. Yes, and Glenn had already been wearing a hockey mask when he was Unibom, and that wasn't the... Here's the... Everybody knows, because this was Glenn, like I said, I wanted to take interest in this, and also the way that it was going, and with Bruce being, you know, enthusiastic about selling it, I said, okay. I said, what would Kane look like? And remember, I'm not working for Bill Watts here. This is some ridiculous shit coming up, but I'm working for Vince McMahon. I'm trying to get in the fucking... They're trying to get in the flavor of the party, right? I'm trying to get in the, the, the scheme of things. 
I said, all right. Cain's brother in a, it was burned horribly and disfigured in the fire at the funeral home. Everybody thought he was dead. That's why Undertaker hadn't known about him, but Paul Bearer didn't. Paul Bearer is the one that's been taking care of him. That's the story that we're telling. So what about this? And you should have seen Vince's face when I said some of this, because I don't, I don't know that he's ever seen the movie Halloween. We have proof that he's been to a movie recently, but Halloween's my favorite horror movie of modern times. So as I, we know that, that Michael Myers escaped from the mental institution, uh, fucking killed a gas station attendant and got his jumpsuit, and then broke into a store and got a Halloween mask, and it's the William Shatner mask from Star Trek. That's what he wears in the movie. The flavor of it, to me, seemed like that if this guy has been held prisoner somewhere in, this, in solitary by Paul Bearer, that he'd just have maybe kind of threadbare, bland, you know, dark-colored shirt and pants but he would have, in the flavor of Michael Myers, he would have a mask because he's disfigured. He'd have a mask of a, a handsome man's face, but it would have no expression. The blank expression is what made Michael Myers so scary in that William Shatner mask because it was a blank expression from a guy with a knife, a guy doing all this shit, but there's no face. And I thought if he's disfigured, he wants to look normal. He's got something like that. And maybe we do vignettes where, and again, this is preposterous, but I'm not working for Bill Watts and Eddie Graham here. You see through the eye holes of the mask, like in some of the shots in Halloween, and you hear the breath <laughs> inside the mask, right? And you see this room. And floor to ceiling, wall to wall, it's covered with pictures taped and thumbtacked of the Undertaker, like in the Omen, the 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 drywallers downstairs, and also the priest in the Omen that was trying to protect himself from the son of Satan by putting pages from the Bible, lining every inch of his the wall of his room to keep the evil out. But the but this. Cain has been fixated on his brother. And then you see through the eye holes, he's got a candle and he's holding his hand over the candle where the flame is burning his flesh. But instead, he's just holding his hand there and he's going, hoo -hoo, hoo -hoo, hoo -hoo. and then you hear Paul Bear's voice Cain, it's time for dinner. And you hear this clack, and there he's thrown raw steaks and maggot-infested fucking bread and shit on the floor in front of Cain. You see the eye holes look down at it, and you hear Paul Bear's voice, If you don't like it, blame your brother! And then a door slams. And then fucking Cain takes the fucking candle and starts setting all the pictures of Undertaker on fire. I may have been a little ahead of my time for the WWF in 1997. But it seemed to me that that would be something that people would, you know, think, well, there's something wrong with this fucking guy. 
But instead, Vince called Creative Services and had a superhero outfit made, (laughs) red tights and red mask. And I don't know that if this guy had been held in a fucking room after being disfigured by a fire and held in solitary by a fat evil manager for 20 years and fed garbage that he would have time to stop by and get custom-made tights. But nevertheless, Vince likes that superhero look, and that's how Vince, as Glenn said in this episode, sold him on the look. But Kane wants to be better than The Undertaker, so he wants to look better too. Okay. What do you think? Like fucking psychopathic serial killer murder from the movies or superhero in a red cape? I'm not into the whole raw meat thing and everything, but also <laughs> but also the Vince McMahon explanation of it. I feel like with no explanation, it just kind of works. And as far as he goes, we talked about the gimmicks that didn't work. He was Unabomb, had a couple other little gimmicks before then. We saw him without the mask later on. I think he's a classic example of someone in wrestling who needed a mask. And actually, he's one of the great masked wrestlers. If you look at success, yeah. he, he was someone who worked well wearing a mask. And I thought he lost a lot when he lost it. Well, that's what I was going to bring up. And, and thankfully, they glossed over a lot of that period. But Vince always loves to monkey with shit. He wants to freshen shit up or monkey with it or change it or update it. That's why they switched Austin heel and he hugged him and killed the business. But when Kane took the mask off and wasn't disfigured, that, I mean, he shaved some bald spots in his hair or whatever, but that to me hurt. And then I liked it when they had him using the, the, the voice box thing because he had no voice because of the fire or whatever. I liked that. But when they, when they took the mask off and he wasn't disfigured and he could speak and they just ignored, it would be like suddenly if you had the fantastic four, but Ben Grimm never turned into the thing because of gamma radiation. It was actually a reaction to fucking shellfish. What? You can't just, change all those things that we've already been told and assumed as fact, and then just we're completely changing it. And the same thing with the undertaker. I didn't like the American badass because it made him a real person. And I thought hurt the mystique of the, of the gimmick. But when you think about it in the long run, because undertaker got 30 years and Kane's got 25, them changing their gimmicks made the original gimmicks more over. Because nobody talks about maskless Kane doing promos. Everybody talks about the big red machine. Yeah, some people like the American badass. And I know as Mark got to ride motorcycles and play kid rock music. But it made people long for... The Undertaker, and when they finally gave them back Kane in the mask and gave them back The Undertaker, how can I miss you if you won't go away? The people missed them like crazy because, you know, they didn't have it anymore and now they got it back. So I never like contradicting shit that you have said to the fans is true about anybody. I think that hurts whoever that person is. But in this case, because they'd gotten over so strong before they messed with it, 
and the messing didn't last incredibly long, they finally got Undertaker and Kane back as the way they remembered them, and it helped instead of hurt, if that makes any sense. And you notice that they didn't monkey with it anymore after they brought them back. But and, and one more thing about the Kane debut and, and the program there, and then we'll move on, but I'd forgotten about Kane throwing Taker in the casket and setting him on fire. Because here again was the thing. The week after the Bad Blood pay-per-view, where Kane had appeared and Tombstone Taker and boom, Shit stain in the writing meeting. Okay, we'll have Kane come out and choke slam Undertaker through the announce desk on Raw. And Bruce and I both have stop, slow down. Because again, and this was about six months into my relationship with Shit stain. And I met Bruce was always friendly with him and always took his amateurishness and verbal diarrhea in much better humor than I did. But I had tried to be friendly at the start. And I thought, okay, guy's never been in the wrestling business before. He's never been in locker rooms before. He's never had any experience at any of this. He's got a lot of ideas. They've hired him. Bruce likes him. Let's see if we can teach him something, right? And then I've mentioned we went through the period where we tried to do that. And then I found out that he not only couldn't learn, but wasn't interested in learning because he had a better way of doing things. <laughs> and that was nonsense and led to numerous incidents. But the one, and, and even Bruce had to slow down. Vince had also given us the parameters that Kane would not face the Undertaker in the ring until WrestleMania, which was the end of March, and we're now in the middle of October. So we got five and a half months. I said, Kane has cost undertaker a loss but he's still his brother that he just found out that is still alive and if we're going to go with this thing then undertaker he doesn't want to fight his brother but if kane choke slams undertaker through the announce desk on raw after he just cost him to lose a match to Shawn michaels now undertaker's going to have to want to fight him or else why is undertaker's a pussy so if he choke slams him through the fucking desk this week, how are we going to stretch the rest of this five months out? Idiot. So Bruce and I got Vince to agree that the method that Kane would use would be to take the animosity out on everyone else, the old let it be on your head. I'm going to, and that's why Kane didn't come out and start wrestling. As in sanctioned matches immediately. As you'll remember, he would somehow, something would be happening. Some match would be going on. Some interview, something would be taking place. And suddenly lights off, red lights, spooky music. Here comes Kane and he beats up everybody. Babyface, heels, referees, whatever's in his way. Because he don't give a shit. And Paul Bear is saying, we will hurt everyone including people dear to you until you agree to face your brother. And we were going to run that until 
January-ish rumble time thereabouts when then something would happen physically or Kane would do something and finally we'd be able to book the WrestleMania match. Well, of course, that worked until then by mid-December or there, or mid we did the timeline somewhere. I'm off the creative team. Shitstain's gone and buried me behind my back after hours. Bruce was already being transitioned into the office because I'm sure he was doing the same thing to him. We find out, we found out through court depositions and documents that Shitstain buries everybody behind their back he's working with. So me and Bruce are gone, and they bring fat back Ferrara in to carry Shitstain's papers because Ferrara had never been in the wrestling business before, had no idea what he was doing, and he got hired to be Shitstain's assistant so Shitstain could act like he was important, and then you had the blind leading the fat. So point I was making on this is, as pertains to this program, they couldn't even just do an angle. This was supposed to be and turned out to be a multi-year program between Undertaker and Kane. And we knew that. That's why we didn't want to, I don't know, burn people alive is the first angle. As soon as me and Bruce are off creative, what was it, January? About rumble time. Kane and Paul Bearer throw Undertaker in the fucking casket and set it on fire on live TV. And Undertaker goes away to fucking, you know, across the river sticks into the land of the dead until WrestleMania or whatever. But thankfully, the personalities were so strong, even Shitstain and his shit assistant couldn't fuck it up. But that was the battle that we were fighting constantly was, can we just have them have a match first before they resort to cremation? But anyway, then they followed the Undertaker and Kane program on the, the bio here, or the rivals here through the years. They were opponents. They were partners. They were brothers of destruction. And now one is a retired motivational speaker and the other is the crackpot right-wing mayor of poor Knoxville, who's against people being able to control the amount of children they have and wants people to have a lot of guns and thinks that the orange dipshit should have been in office. So. Everybody lets you down in the end. Final thoughts on this program, Brian? Uh, I kind of zoned out by the end of it because I, I feel like I've seen this before. You know what I mean? Like we just watched the Undertaker thing. So after like 2006, when they got to that point, I was like, okay, I don't think I need to see too much more of this. Yeah. After the Undertaker's return at WrestleMania, where he had the gimmick back, and they brought Paul Bearer out again, and. uh other than and there that, you go. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, some fans may be disappointed in some of the content, either in the rival show or maybe here this week. But of course, we do have some questions. But if you are disappointed at WWE, not us, you may want to look to Sue. There's the always, always the option of litigation. And if you feel that you have been cheated in some way you have buyer's remorse because you the product has been misrepresented like the wwe product often is or you feel in some way that you have been harmed because you've been lied to and haven't been given the straight story about historical facts sometimes like the wwe does i'm not sure that's illegal but you can sue for it anyway and i know the man that you can call Call Stephen P. <laughs>
show or two. Still sue their ass. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, and he will sue their ass on your behalf. So you will be, you will be assing on, on, or he will be assing on your behalf. That's what he'll be doing. You know, we had Steven on the program a couple of weeks ago and he gave some great advice. A lot of the listeners came in and they wrote in, emailed in, Twittered in, and said that was very perceptive of a legal expert to break down some of the issues involving Vince McMahon. And they said that was very perceptive of a legal expert to break down some of the issues that wrestlers can be sued for by fans. You know who didn't get in touch with us, Brian? Any wrestlers that actually said, you know what? I'm an idiot. I didn't know all these things until you guys and Stephen P. New talked about them. And now I'm going to modify my behavior so I don't spend the rest of my life working for some fat plumber or paying for his children to go through medical school because I was so stupid that I injured them in the course of doing my phony wrestling. We didn't hear from any of those wrestlers. They didn't learn a thing. But folks, regular people like you can, if you have been wrongfully terminated, if your health has been damaged by other people's negligence, if you've had an accident and nobody wants to own up responsibility and make you whole again, as they say, if any of these things apply to you and so many more, and you need someone to navigate you through the treacherous, shark-infested legal waters of the American jurisprudence system, even if you want to sue drywallers for making noise while you're recording a podcast, call Stephen P. New at 888-692-8084 or log on to New, that's N-E-W, newlawoffice.com, and you will be immediately referred to the man, the myth, the legend that has won almost $100 million in judgments for his clients during his legal career, and you could be next. Just like Ric Flair used to say to the women in the front row in any arena, you can't be first, but you can be next. In line to sue. Yes, in line to sue Ric Flair, you could be next. Well, you could be, well, I thought you meant you could be in line to fuck Stephen P. New, but see, those things are switched. You could be next in line to fuck Flair, or you could be next in line for Stephen to sue you or to sue someone on your behalf. The life that Ric Flair in many ways pretended to have is the life that Stephen P. New really has. He really does. He really is a jet flying limousine. Limousine riding, <laughs> kiss stealing, wheeling dealing. He's the real flair. He's a writ writing son of a gun. <laughs> there you go. You see? And I'll tell you what, he's been writing writs all morning. If you've read the writs he's written, you'll know they're really well written writs. Where did Stephen you first, P. New. Where did you first hear that? Where did I, fr- I, I first heard it the first time I said it. Oh, you came up oh, with that? That, that wasn't that's like something? That's mine. Okay. No, that's mine. Thank you very much. I never know if it's Green Acres or something else. Oh, no, <laughs> no. That, that's mine. Because, well, here's the thing. I, it was Clarence Mason, right? Was that the first one? I, he was the first lawyer I used it on, I think. Or maybe it was in Smoke. I can't remember. But what does a lawyer do? A lawyer writes writs. Well, what do you do with a writ? You read a writ. Well, if I'm reading the writs that he's written then I would know that they're really well. And it just, 
I like alliteration. What can I say? Well, it's such a good line that I thought it was off 60s TV. If that's an ultimate compliment for you. That's the ultimate compliment. I'll take that compliment. And you take my advice, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. Get Stephen P. New started writing writs. All right, well, we will get going with some more of the show here. We're having too much fun at times. Jim, a story that several of the listeners have been sending in for the last day. This tweet came out yesterday, 12.55. Sean Ross Sapp of Fightful.com is reporting on Twitter. Fightful Select has learned that talent and staff in AEW have been told Kenny Omega is nearing a return. And the story has come out, and remarkably, it's somewhat similar to what we said on the show. I know. I I read this like two days afterwards. I'm like, seriously, are they now, is this just a rib on us? They're like, okay, they say that? Well, we'll do it. What did we say on the last show? We said this whole reason for FTR to win all these belts that don't mean anything in AEW. The AAA belts, they mean something in AAA. The IWGP belts mean something in New Japan. Ring of Honor belts, unfortunately, don't really mean anything in Ring of Honor anymore because there is no Ring of Honor, even though they're having a pay-per-view this weekend. (laughs) Tony's fucking backwards. We're going to run pay-per-views, then we're going to start the company again. But the reason to have all of those is to finally have the showdown for the AEW tag team titles, the re- the ones that mean something in this environment, and have it between FTR and the Bucks, because the Bucks have been screaming that they're the greatest tag team in the world, and some of their idiot fans actually believe them. And now more people are realizing that FTR are the currently the best tag team in the world, and the only opposition they have for that title, me is Mark and Jay Briscoe, but since... FTR, I think, is a little more polished in the ring, even though Jay Briscoe especially is a little bit better promo. You're neck and neck. You're one and two. It'd be a pick either team, but not the Hardly Boys. So the idea to be best for business would be for, finally, the Hardly Boys to have the, the rubber match, number three, they're one and one, with FTR, on an AEW pay-per-view event that people would have to pay to see and that there'd be anticipation for and put FTR over so now they have all the belts and the people that are chanting for them that want to see them win all these belts, they are rewarded with that and it helps business. And it shows that the Hardly Boys can somehow, through their dim little brains, recognize when somebody's better than they are and for the business that they're executive vice presidents of, they need to swallow their overinflated egos and do what's right for everybody. Huh, interesting. You, we don't, said, you don't think the better reaction is to immediately turn yourself babyface, align yourself with Kenny Omega and be the champions of the six-man tag division? Well, but wait. We said on the show, but no, they're not going to do that. What they'll probably do is go get Twinkle Toes and go find some more of their fucking kids that they used to play in PWG with when they put their own shows on, like Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. Hey, kids, let's put on a wrestling show. <laughs> Mickey and Rooney can... Jr. just died yesterday. I saw well, there the you go. Well, that's because he heard this news. And 
that's what they're going to do. They're going to fight. They're going to have a six-man tag team match with old Twinkle Toes as their partner. Now, bear in mind, last time we saw Twinkle Toes, he was a heel. And the Hardly Boys are heels, too. But now they're talking about fighting the poor, formerly uh, uh, undisputed era, who is now, you know, glorified job guys whenever Adam Cole is not injured. Where's Kyle O'Reilly been? Bobby Fish. Somebody needs to put a worm on a hook and see if they can catch him. There's a lot of people disputing that era. Well, the point is, they've actually come out and said that the idea was to lead to the third match with FTR and the Bucks, but this, they have put those plans on hold. The plans that would have resulted in something that the fans wanted to see, the plans that would have resulted in FTR getting... Oh, more over than they are right now because of good booking. The plans that would have made sense have been put on hold because the Young Bucks have decided to bring Kenny back and have a play match with their friends. And that's what they are labeling as a major angle, quote unquote, that's more important than what they were going to do. And and some of their fans are buying that. Like, that is a really a legitimate statement. They don't want to put these fucking guys over. They can't admit that now even their own fans are starting to turn on them because it's the same shit constantly and people are tired of it. And they like a better team that's more talented. And instead of going with that, because they're also executive vice presidents of this, of this company, and they should be wanting the company's success, but that's Tony Khan's mistake that he gave these jack-offs that position, but they don't care about the company. They don't want to do the job. They don't want to admit they're not as good as they think they are. They don't want to admit that FTR is better. They don't want to admit that people think that, and they don't want to prove it in the ring. They want to bring back Harpo and play with their friends, and that's what's going to happen. And we called it last week. Well, let's... let's Major angle. Let's play devil's advocate. Harpo's ready to come back. He's been honking his horn. He's ready to go. He's got his big coat with all of his pockets. I guess that's a bad comparison considering there is a pockets in AEW. Harpo's ready to come back. The Young Bucks are very sensitive. And they didn't like the fact that they got not even booed out of the building. They got, what do you call it when someone just yells the name of someone they like better at you? They got, they got grudge chanted. <laughs> Grudge chant, grudge chant out of the building. We've been saying it for a while. People are catching up. People are getting tired of their act. People are getting tired of them. As soon as Nick Jackson gets in the ring, you know what he's going to do? He's going to grab the guy's hand and he's going to run to the rope and do a twisting tumble salt off. I've seen it all the time. And they don't want to drop the belts to FTR. So think about where we're going to go now. You got to figure FTR are going to get the belts either from Lee and Swerve, which doesn't really mean anything as FTR versus the Young Bucks for all the belts would. There isn't a single team in AEW that if they were going to win the AEW tag titles off, it would mean anything like it would the Young Bucks. Tony, as a booker, you know he knows that. No, he doesn't. You don't think he knows that? He's playing a booker on television. He's not a booker. And he's listening to... How else is it that they they go to him and say, well, instead of that big blow-off match with FTR, what about if we bring Kenny back and have a six-man tag? 
And they'll and they'll sell that to him like that's why they're calling it a major angle because they have got Tony Khan believing that having Kenny Olivier come back on a program is going to be a big major fucking deal. And I will admit that I'm pissed off at Twinkle Toes because he proved me wrong and I don't like that. How many years have I been saying, how can I miss you if you won't go away? He goes away and we don't miss him. And that's why he's rushing his comeback because he's sitting there going, you know what? <laughs> the only time even people even talked about me in the last three months is when I tried to joust with Cornette on Twitter and got slapped down. Yeah, he's going to try to rush to come back before Punk gets back. That's the well, other th- There you go. He's got to beat that yeah. because... So, so he's probably saying, hey, I don't care if I got to fucking pour myself into a plaster body cast. I better get back there and do what I can do because they're going to forget about me completely. How is that? The pro- no viewers have been lost. The viewership, the ratings are up and down based on their other rotten talent and rotten programs, but it's not appreciably better or worse since Kenny's been gone. Nothing changed. They've still had matches. Well, he'll have more hands-on booking now with the women's division. He's done such a great job I was about of to, Well, as a matter of fact, for a little while, the women's division started to get better because his untrained mud show amateur joke underage Japanese fetish objects were limited. Hey, I'm wondering, if Cody Rhodes signs an NDA, does that mean Brandy? Ro- well, we don't know if she signed an NDA. I'm wondering. There's so much I'd like to hear people say, but let me ask you this. Let's look on the bright side. If Kenny Omega is really as banged up as he says, a six-man makes some sense. If they're going to take all of these guys, Bucks, Omega, let's say Dark Order and Page, Rick Knox, put them all together and have them have a trios division, Undisputed Era, sadly, because Kyle O'Reilly's being wasted. Yeah. If they're going to do that and keep them all in one trios division and keep them out of the tag team division, out of the singles division, how do you feel about that? Can they be out of the TV division? <laughs> uh, there are others who are out of the TV division, actually, so technically they could be, yes. Then I would be in favor of that. Why don't they send all the trampoline cowboys to Ring of Honor? Because that's where they started 15 years ago with just, you know, 140-pound guys doing fucking gymnastics. And that way, the original Ring of Honor fan base, if they're still around, they could enjoy that with the new trampoline cowboys, and we can put all the wrestlers, like the Punks and the FTRs and the Lethals and the Samoa Joes and the Hobbses and the Starkses and the Wardlows and on and on, we could put them on AEW and they could have a good television program. Maybe that would be it. Split your genres, Tony. Don't split your roster. Put the pretend wrestlers on in one company and the real ones in the other company and then see which one does better. That'd be an idea. Well, Jim, let me ask you about something else that has recently happened, and this is something we received a few emails about, and I saw a tweet from Mike Tenay. This email was sent to CourtneyDriveThrough at gmail.com from Terry in Beaumont, Alberta, Canada. With the passing of Bobby the Brain's wife, Cindy, uh. I'm wondering what kind of lady was she? Do you have any stories to share regarding her or memories? How was her life with Bobby? Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Well, I can imagine it was a fucking barrel of laughs for most of the time. Uh, Obviously, they did have some 
you know, down periods with Bobby's health over the last number of years of his life. But no, I've, I've met Cindy numerous times, didn't ever spend a ton of time with her. She didn't travel or go on the road with Bobby until his health got bad. And then, you know, she would go to, uh, and I don't know about all of them, but a lot of them, most of the time when I saw Bobby, Cindy would be with him over the last several years of his life because she was there with him all the time. She took care of him. And I hesitate to say that. I don't know how to say this the right way, but when Bobby got to where he couldn't really speak, Cindy, because she was with him all the time, kind of became his interpreter, where if if she would see somebody, because everybody went up to Bobby and everybody wanted to talk to him. And, you know, when he couldn't, he could make the noise, but he couldn't formulate a lot of the words because of the damage that had been done to his jaw area and et cetera from the surgeries. And so she could be his interpreter. And she's, oh, Bobby's saying this, or Bobby's, and she took it such good humor and always with a smile. And, you know, Bobby would, he would still, he'd be doing his silent movie comedian stuff. He couldn't crack the jokes, but he'd still be doing the physical comedy, like, you know, maybe trying to slip or whatever, or some girl in a photo op would walk by him and he'd take his cane that he had and grab the back of her skirt and lift it up just enough to where you'd get the idea of what he was doing, but not to embarrass the person. And, you know, so Cindy was with him through that and, and with just the nicest lady and very sweet. And, you know, you have to admire the dedication that she showed in, in being in that situation and being as, as, as nice and, and caretaker to Bobby as, as she could. And I, I mean, I, I heard that she had passed away, obviously the old line, I didn't know if she was sick. I don't know if it was ill health or something sudden. And I guess, geez, Bobby was almost 20 years older than me. So Cindy was in his age range. I assume she was in her 70s. So, but uh, I hated to hear that. But she was a very nice lady. No real, you know, no road stories about Cindy Heenan, for heaven's sake. But just they were together for, God, how long would it have been? You know, 50 years or whatever the case. And, and, uh, She's a very nice lady. I was sorry to hear about that. Jim, our next question sent to CourtneyDriveThru at gmail.com is from Jason in Cortland, Illinois. I get that gum chewing works for when someone gets hit. It looks like maybe a tooth is coming out. But I've also seen wrestlers chewing gum during promos. Why do wrestlers seemingly chew gum nonstop? And how is it... Excuse me, you misspelled the word here. And how is it not a distraction? You know, I don't know, but a lot of them do it. And here's the thing. I've never been a big gum chewer, but gum to me wears out quickly. Like you put the Wrigley Spearmint in after the next minute, minute and a half, then it starts just becoming your the act of chewing unflavored gum, right? Because all the spearmint's off of it. But so, but some guys, it's gives them something to do, whether it's uh, with some people, it's calms their nerves with some people. It's just like a physical tick or thing you do. And, and I've seen guys, not only like you say, do, you know, doing promos, but having an entire match while chewing gum and Lawler, Jerry Lawler. I don't know if he still does it, but back in the days you know, the 70s and 80s, 
and into the 90s, he probably still does it, he would put a fresh stick of gum in his mouth and he would chew gum through the entire match when he was selling, when he was coming back, when he was, when he was calling matches. Which is why it, Eddie it, Gilbert chewed gum later on. Which is why Eddie Gilbert did it because, you know, Lawler, if, if, if Lawler goddamn drained his, all of his blood and fucking threw it in the lake, Eddie would have done the same thing. But it helped him do that. And, and it, it wasn't even nerves or keeping calm. We've said there's nobody else in the history of the world more calm than Jerry Lawler, especially in a wrestling ring. And he would be chewing gum and calling shit. His lips wouldn't be moving. You could hear his voice in your head, but it didn't sound like anybody else could hear it. And he'd never miss a lick on his gum. I, so that is a thing that some guys do, and it helps them like I said, either concentrate or fight nerves or just gives them something to do or just a habit or like a physical tick or whatever. And I don't understand it. And I don't know how that it, my mouth, cause I mean, I was never in any physical condition, but I'd be in a, a match of any description that went any length of time where I had to do anything. I'm blowed up. And to me, chewing gum makes your mouth even drier after it's worn out. So I, I I don't know how they did it, but a lot of guys did. And some people would try to do that. And the first time they took a slam, they'd swallow that gum and choke and die. It just depends on the person. All right, Jim. Well, our next question, we had a few people send this in this morning. Apparently Seth Rollins, trying to see what exactly this is. Seth Rollins issued an apology for a fan interaction gone wrong. Uh-oh. Have you heard anything about this? I, I don't know how to, what, who was the first, who threw the first blow if the fan interaction went wrong? Well, here is a note posted by Seth Rollins on his Instagram page. Hello, fine folks. I love interacting with my fans. You guys are the best. Your continued support of me and the Black and Brave Wrestling Enterprise is what keeps our collective heart beating strong. What is that? What's the black and brave? I think he has a wrestling school, apparently, okay. in Iowa. He's from Iowa, right? Is it Iowa? I think so. I think so. It's in the Midwest out there. Somewhere near the surf ballroom in Clear Lake. Today, a couple of young cats saw my wife and me training in the back Wait, of wait, what? Back up. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm reading it verbatim. Let me go back to what? Seth Scat Rollins has to say here. Scat, Scat Man Rollins. Today, a couple of young cats saw my wife and me. I can't even say it now. <laughs> a couple of young cats came in and skidded bebop. Hey, Daddy-O. Hey, Daddy-O, 23 skidoo. Today, a couple of young cats. All you cats and kittens out there. <laughs> He's going to be a DJ today playing mountains of sounds and stacks of wax all designed with you in mind. Here's one's guaranteed to blow your mind from 1962, that golden year. Today, a couple of young cats saw my wife and me training in the back of the brick and mortar and stopped by to say hello. In in the back of the brick and mortar. So he's now he's working for, for rockauto.com's uh, uh, competitors? Unfortunately, I was right in the middle of a long workout. That's long with several O's in the middle of it. I was very harsh and abrupt in my candor. <clears throat> for that, I apologize. There's no excuse for that. If either you folks who I was short with today are reading this, please come back another time. 
I'd love to apologize in person. That open invite is all-inclusive, too. Feel free to pop by the school if I happen to be here. Please just be conscious of what's going on around you. Wait a minute, he's encouraging pop-ins? Don't be deterred if I'm teaching a class or deep in the sweat game. It It may take a few minutes, but I promise I'm down to take a pic or have a quick chat. In closing, thank you again to all of you who have had our backs over the years. Here's to many more. Our door is always open during business hours, so come on by. Who did he piss off? The chairman of the local welcome wagon? The mayor. (laughs) The The mayor came in? He's like, fuck you, Mayor of Linseed. Um, Okay, so I gather from this that he's working out and a couple of fans came up to him and he blew them off and told them to fuck off. But here's the thing. Why is he apologizing to the world on Twitter for an incident that nobody would have known about had it not been for him telling them about it? None of what we've been sent has anything before this, but we don't know what happened before this. If fans did go on Twitter and say, hey, this guy went up to him and his wife and he's a dick, we don't know what they said. Well, at least that's better than her being a dick. (laughs) Somebody's got to have the dick in the family. Did you ever see Heavy Metal Parking Lot? The Jeff Krulik film? I did not. Oh, you have to see it. It's a brilliant 20-minute look at society. And <laughs> in it, it's, it, again, it's... It, society doesn't take longer than 20 minutes to look at these days. I'll agree with you there. I believe it's 1986, and they interview the people in the parking lot of the Judas Priest concert. And one of the guys just goes, and Madonna, she's a dick. <laughs> and that line has always stayed with me but anyway we're back to uh, Seth Rollins and his wife we don't know well, what happened but, well we don't know what happened but it was nice of him to tell those two cats to come over and groove with him and uh, and his wife uh, when they're not in the sweat game and they're just idly chilling and Netflixing or whatever the kids say these days Seth is not a, he's not a a rude person, but anybody, you know, if you're having a workout or you're mad in the airport and somebody comes up, Hey, can you fucking tell me your entire life story? Fuck you. No, I can't. I'm busy. Fuck off. See, and that's what I'm thinking too. And I think there's nothing wrong with saying to people, Hey, respect my boundaries. I'm doing something. Mind your own fucking business. Do you think he reacted differently because it is his shop, his brick and Morton, brick and Morton, brick and and mortar. Brick and Morton. Ricky Morton and Brick and Morton. They were a great tag team. Brickhouse Brown and Ricky Morton. Brick and Morton. Uh, (laughs) I don't, I I mean, I don't know what the, uh, I don't know what the interaction was, so I can't speculate. He's he's a nice guy. Wouldn't usually be rude to his fans in my experience. I haven't seen him in a number of years, but at the same time, people can be, you know, rude when they come up to you when you're doing something, when you're eating or when you're working out and they want, okay, can you sign these seven pictures or can you, I'm going to call my brother-in-law. Could you just talk to him on the phone for a minute? Sometimes. Do people hit you with that a lot? Oh yeah. At, at, at comic cons, but when I'm in a booth and I'm right there, Hey, if I call so-and-so, will you talk to him? Actually, I've done it when, uh, when there's not a line. You know, yeah, I call him up, I'll cuss him out or whatever you want. I think that's how I, I may have called Santino Morello one time. One of the fans said, hey, I got Santino Morello's number. I'll call him up. I didn't know whether it was him or not. 
He says he to this day swears that I called him and cussed him out and laughed at him for having surgery. I may have, but it, the point is you get that sometimes. And in a lot of cases, you don't have time. You're not in a good mood or the way that it comes off is a little, you know, same way people sometimes kids will, you know, will send you a letter and, and enclose a self-addressed stamped envelope, and it's a nice handwritten little note. Can you sign my trading card? Okay. You know, I'm, I'm not going to fucking, oh, kid, you can go to my website. But then you get people that send you a Xerox copy of a typewritten letter, and they enclose seven eight by 10s for you to sign for their collection, and you go, fuck it, thank you for the seven eight by 10s motherfucker and you throw the letter in the return envelope away because you know what you're getting. So you never know. I don't know what the interaction was, but it, the point is somebody must have complained somewhere in public or elsewise he wouldn't have told the entire world that he was rude to two dipshits at his wrestling school. Jim, our next uh, topic here, because again, this is one that multiple people have sent in. I think I know why. Want to get your thoughts on this? I have an article from Wrestle Talk by Taylor Sanchez. ESPN on is that is that is that Dirty's little sister? Dirty Sanchez's little sister Taylor. It appears this is a man, perhaps his brother. But ESPN oh. honoring WWE as Sports Humanitarian League champion. What? ESPN now recognizes WWE as a Sports Humanitarian League champion for its community work ahead of the ESPYS. ESPN shared a video on social media announcing the honor, writing, As part of the Sports Humanitarian Awards, ESPN is recognizing WWE as a Sports Humanitarian League champion for its commitment to bring communities together by giving back, providing hope, creating inclusion, empowering communities, and recognizing service both near and far. What about, what about their boring, phony-looking, silly, nonsensical programming does any of those things? What about the hush money fits in with any of that? ESPN has been, I guess now that we've, you've just brought that subject up, it would be in poor taste for me to say ESPN's been in bed with the WWE for some time now. When did this worm turn? Be because besides in the 80s when ESPN had world-class and global wrestling or whatever, and, and aired it at four o'clock on weekdays. Um, the ESPN sports anchors all used to make fun of wrestling, roll their eyes. The ESPN was for real sports and et cetera, et cetera. Charlie Steiner was a wrestling fan. And I only know that because Marty Gorman told me that he used to talk to him in the elevator in a building they both worked in. <laughs> But the point is ESPN had the big head and it was all about the real sports and, you know, that wrestling stuff. And now that wrestling has never looked phonier than, than ever before, ESPN's all over it and praising them and nominating them for awards and to potentially be named the next Pope. Who's in bed with who in the ESPN WWE corporate global ownership thing, sweepstakes? Well, interim WWE chairwoman and CEO Stephanie McMahon has commented on the honor, tweeting, At our very core, WWE's mission is to put smiles on the faces, <sighs> excuse me, on faces the world over. 
I'm so proud of the work WWE community continues to do every day to change lives through service. Thank you for this incredible honor, ESPN citizenship, and thank you for not asking about my dad. No, that part yeah, wasn't there. Yeah, that, yeah. You know what I wish they'd put on somebody's face? I'd like to see somebody at a WWE wrestling event that had hatred on their face that was so mad at the fucking heel that they were going to climb over that goddamn barricade and they had the blunt instrument in their hand and they're trying to bludgeon that son of a bitch and the cops are trying to hold him back and the heel's laughing at him. And that fucking guy is fucking bullshit, and he has decided right there at that point that if he ever gets out of jail, he will get his hands on that heel, and he will not only do that, but he will buy a ticket to every fucking match that heel has until some babyface kicks the shit out of him, beats him bloody, and pins him. That's what I want to see, because I used to see about 100,000 of those a week, and I haven't seen one in a long fucking time. I don't want to see all the fans laughing at what I'm doing and say, oh, look at that fake phony son of a bitch. Isn't he funny? I want to see people trying to fucking kill me because they'll come back next week and try to do it again. And as long as I keep them mad at me and convinced that what I'm doing is completely legitimate and contrary to their best interests of them and their heroes, They'll keep coming back until I get fucking sodomized with a rusty fishing knife. And that will happen on pay-per-view. Smiles on people's faces. Highly overrated smiling. And that will not be a pay-per-view I purchase. But Jim, let me get what may be our final question here. This one sent to CourtneyDriveThru at gmail.com from Cody in Westminster, Maryland. Wait a minute. I thought he still lived in suburban Atlanta. Cody's moved to Maryland? I think this is a different Cody, but Cody does have some time on his hands. We don't know. But here's the question. There has been a name popping up for months, it seems, on the drive-thru and the experience. Jim has dropped this name whenever the Booker of the Year has underneath talent being competitive or doing run-ins on actual stars in AEW or with Swami barking in the background. Shut up! So my hey, question, don't talk to your don't talk to your son like that. I'm yelling through several doors. The yell is a well. You ought to component. you ought to open the goddamn doors. You wouldn't have to yell through them. Let me go back to this question. So my question is, what is Jim's problem with Taka Michinoku? <laughs> is there heat? Did Kai and Tai rib Jim so bad that he holds disdain for Taka to this day? I can't count how many times I've heard. That would be like Taka Michinoku being competitive with Steve Austin. Let's clear the air on this once and for all. Okay, I, I could have used Gilberg. I could, you know, but Taka was a great kid. I never had a problem with Taka. Taka was a good worker. The problem was it, the whole group, Kai and Tai, Taka Michinoku. What was the, um, oh God, there was Dick to go. Wally Yamaguchi. Well, Wally Yamaguchi was the manager, but he he just made a few appearances. He was the Wally Yamaguchi, for those that don't know, was a longtime photographer for Gong magazine and the, the magazines in Japan, and also worked as a liaison with talent for the Japanese offices was because he had he spoke fluent English and lived in Dallas for most of the year. 
And but he was uh, a fixture on the Japanese wrestling scene and the press, and and they got him to be the manager. That was who Wally Wally San was. But what was the other guy? Shofunaki. The point is, they were a group of guys that could wrestle, but they couldn't do promos. And Shitstain made a comedy figure out of one or more of them at various points. Remember Choppy Choppy Your PP or whatever the fuck. Um, and that was old Bob Clark. When Bob Clark came down to OVW and buried himself to where Danny Davis had to call the office and said, don't send Bob Clark anymore. We're going to throw him out in the parking lot. Who's He's Bob pissing Clark? the boys off. Bob Clark was a guy that worked in the TV studio. And he was a nice, a big, heavy set, jovial fellow. Was very nice. And he had worked at the TV studio all the time he'd worked with the company. As a, a you know, one of the associate producers and tech, whatever. But they moved him into talent relations uh, around the time that I moved back down to Louisville to start working with OVW here. And as a matter of fact, Bob Clark had driven me to Madison Square Garden several times because he always had to go to the garden because of his TV job commitments. And the garden fans and the whole garden setup, I hated to go to Madison Square Garden, even for a Madison Square Garden payoff. I hated working that fucking building because you had to drive into New York City there was no place for the boys to park. They wouldn't even let the boys park inside the building. Like every other major arena in the world, you had to park across the street in one of those garages and pay, and this was 25 years ago, $30 to park, plus you had to tip the parking guy another $20 to not trap your car in so you could get out and beat the traffic if you weren't on last. Then you had to walk across the street through all the fans that, that would even harass the baby faces. Um, and they would kick you and spit at you or yell at you or whatever. I fucking back elbowed a guy right in a fucking face on my way into the garden one time and then found out that it wasn't him. It was the guy behind him that had kicked me in the leg. So I felt bad for a few minutes, but no, if, if, unless you just walked through and, and we're just okay with, they're going to beat and pound on me until I get through the door, you know, you would hit them back. And the cops wouldn't do anything because the the Madison Square Garden police wouldn't come out the door. The security that they hired was only in the building. And the New York City cops were on the sidewalk and the street, but they wouldn't come in the interim little area. But So you were on your own and coming out, same thing. The strength of the union there, that's what that is. Well, and also coming out, remember, I've told you the story. They had a busload of wrestlers that had done a charity exhibition in Madison Square Garden for children, underprivileged children, earlier that afternoon. And then they did the regular show, and all the guys were leaving in the bus, and the people surrounded the bus, broke the back window out, um, throwing shit, was screaming, and Lollard was dumping buckets of ice water on them from where they had ice, the ice water, the drinks, and the bus. He was dump, and they were melting like the Wicked Witch. And Vince's limo, Vince is pulling out. One night, the limo, and the limo driver, he knows how to navigate this area, right? But he pulled out of the ramp, and he was going to try to make a flying left turn, but traffic was coming. He got stuck, and people started jumping and trying to tip over Vince's limo. And one guy got spread-eagled on the hood, and the limo driver took off down the street, 
and fucking made the little left turn and slid that guy off the hood. He took the hood ornament off the limo with him. So anyway, fuck Madison Square Garden. I hated it. I did. I, I used to ask not to be booked there. Didn't want to fucking go. But when I had to go, Bob Clark would take me because what I, he drove an old beat up car. He's a fat nondescript civilian. And the people didn't know that I was in the backseat under a blanket. So he was able to drive into the building, let me out, and then drive out the other side and go and park. They would let, you know, uh, uh, employees of the company pull in and fucking drop people off, but then you had to have somebody take the car back out. So that was Bob Clark. So point is, he was a nice guy. Then they transfer him to talent relations from the TV studio. Now he's got to deal with the boys. Now he's being told to do different shit than he's used to. And he was a civilian. He was never an athlete. He's never in a locker room. He's never in the wrestling business. But now he's in a position of somewhat authority over at least the trainee guys. And so they started sending him to OVW. And this is when we were in the old building in Jeffersonville, Indiana. So this was 2000, 2001. And he starts pissing the guys off and or freaking them out. He calls a meeting and he says, he's trying to say everybody wants to be a main eventer. Nobody wants to be a preliminary guy, but he says, who here wants to be Kai and Ty? And every hand in the locker room shot up because Kai and Ty was on television. They weren't. <laughs> they wanted to be, yeah, we'll take that. And then another time he decided to sit the guys down individually and give them advice on their matches. Well, depending on the personality that was involved, he got different uh, responses from that. And Danny Davis would hear about all of them. He told Rob Conway what he thought. Rob Conway stayed up all night worrying and called Danny the next morning. He was thinking about quitting the business because that was Rob's personality. He told fucking somebody else something and they got mad and offended and didn't want to speak to him anymore. They called, told somebody else something and they wanted to punch him in the fucking face. Told somebody else something, they took it to heart because it was kind of true. Sooner or later, even a blind squirrel finds a nut, right? But he was causing, the point is he was giving these guys advice when he didn't have a fucking clue what he was talking about and he'd been involved in the business less than shit stain. And it wasn't his place to be critiquing their performances. And then when he started telling Danny Davis changes he wanted Danny to make, Danny had to call fucking Stamford and say, Bob Clark is worrying my talent. He's causing me more trouble. And he's running his fucking dick liquor where he shouldn't. So don't send him down here anymore or somebody's going to beat him up. If, whether it's me or one of the boys, we're not sure. And so they stopped sending him out. But that's the thing with Kai and Ty is it just, I'm reminded of that story. But also it was an example of somebody who got TV time and was used in the glory days that everybody thinks was great years, the Attitude Era of the WWF. But still, you didn't see him going 15 minutes with Steve Austin or The Undertaker. You didn't see... Mankind going out thinking 
my job in life tonight is to make sure all the fans know that Taka's a good worker. Because that would have been ridiculous and nonsense, and it would have hurt the company and everybody involved. So it's nothing personal to Taka Michinoku. It's just personal to anybody that is stupid enough to put their main event talent in the ring in competitive situations with guys who the fans see and who have been presented as preliminary undercard talent. Just because that guy can work, just because he can do great moves, doesn't mean he should be. It's not what you can do, it's what people think, based on your presentation, you should be able to do. And if George South had small-packaged Ric Flair on TBS television and pinned him, well, that probably wouldn't have gotten over because it wouldn't have made a lick of fucking sense because even though George South is a great worker and everybody always wanted to feature a spot with him to not just beat him into powder and make him look like a piece of shit, there was still their personal business and on a wider, bigger basis, everybody's business to think about, and that would have been a stupid fucking thing to do. And people in the wrestling business didn't start doing stupid shit on purpose until recent years before it was always accidental. So that's the thing with Taka or anybody else in that position. Insert your preliminary talent underneath guy or job guy of choice based on your childhood and geographical location and insert the main event star according to the same parameters. And you get the same thing. Just because you can cut your ear off doesn't mean you're Van Gogh. And just because you can do all the wrestling moves doesn't mean you should be allowed to. What do you remember about when he came in, though? Because I remember at the time, the great Suzuki was the one everyone thought was going to be the one signed, the one that would become the big star in WWE in the junior heavyweight division they were going to try to do to compete with yeah. WCWs. Light heavyweight. Light heavyweight division. What happened there? Well, great Sasuke wasn't going to come over there and sign and be full-time because he was already he was somewhat of a star, and wasn't he involved in his own promotion? Well, Michinoku oh, Pro, and, yeah. Yeah, so, but also he wasn't going to be a star in the WWF. Even if great Sasuke was great, it was a fa another one of the phases that Vince's, Vince's, Vince was going through that he runs hot and cold on. Somebody said, hey, they're using cruiserweights. So he's, well, let's get some light heavyweights. Make a light heavyweight division. I was the one who had to call a bunch of light heavyweights. And all it was was he was into it for about three weeks. And then it went the same way of the, the working with Antonio Pena and the AAA and you know, it, 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 Pena flies up to his house bringing gifts and they're going to do this big co-promotion and they're going to work together because the Hispanic market is emerging and it's going to be huge and we got to capitalize on this. And four weeks later, he's got Pena's champion on fucking syndicated TV beating him like a job guy. That's when I said, while he's down there, why don't you just piss in his fucking mouth? I'm just saying that's the light heavyweight tournament and then he's okay, but it's got to be legitimate. So only call guys that's under such and such weight. And so, you know, I, 
had some, Brian Christopher was involved in that. Bobby Fulton and Tommy Rogers, the only match they ever worked against each other, I think, out in public was in the tournament. Said, All right, at least Bobby and Tommy can work because we were dealing with, we got to find guys that somebody might recognize from somewhere that are under 220 pounds that don't mind coming in for shots, even if we're not signing them. And most of them are going to have to do jobs. So I called in a few favors and got a few other people. And Brian Christopher and Taka Michinoku were probably the shining light of that ill-fated division for the time that it was there. But there were never any plans. It, and with Vince around, there were never going to be that the light heavyweight title was ever going to be important. Taka Michinoku was never going to be fucking pushed. Um, none of that was ever going to take place. Well, Jim, uh, we're going to wrap things up in a second. I know we have a lot of questions. We will get more uh, later this week. But, Jim, uh, have you seen anything about this? Because I'm trying to – we have so many Norman Dooley emails. I'm trying to get through them to find something else. <laughs> Several people have sent this in. I'm trying to understand this. People claiming that referee Aubrey Edwards is filing copyright claims against – Oh, I've, I've seen this on Twitter. Apparently in the AEW Botches account. And he's had to go through a couple of permutations. I believe now it's at, hey, uh, Kenny69MeDon or something. <laughs> well, after that famous, you know, the greatest wrestler in the world and his Bobby Heenan-like manager making fellatio and fucking uh, cunnilingus jokes on television. But I've, apparently, Aubrey Edwards does a lot of their stooge work. Uh, she's got something to do with the video game and she does a podcast and, you know, they got to get fucking Mrs. Ed out in front of as many people as possible there. <laughs> Hello, Wilbur. Uh, but anyway, so now apparently they've found out or the the people that have been had these copyright strikes on Twitter directed at them because Tony said he was going to be fan-friendly, and anybody wants to put up clips or spread the word about AEW can, except when they're putting up all the botches. And the AEW botches account has put up, and they got botches from TV, they got botches from YouTube, they got botches from house shows. You and believe the manner in which and the frequency and repetition of which that all these fucking untrained mud show fucks land on their heads or asses. And there was just a video a little while back we talked about on the show going around of referee Aubrey and her various actions during yes. matches yes they, he actually focused one on her where she makes the weird faces and does the weebly wobbly wacky waving arm inflatable tube man stances and just the overacting and dramatizations of everything and so it probably pissed her off so apparently they found out that aubrey edwards under the name donald stevens which i thought was hilarious because that was don fargo's wrestling name when he was Ray Stevens's brother. But uh, Donald Stevens is the one making the copyright claims, trying to get these accounts taken down off Twitter and social media that berate and take AEW to task for all of the botches. And apparently Donald Stevens is, he, he, he sent out, I don't know what this guy's name is, but, um, the AEW botches guy. If that's, a guy out, if that's a guy who tweeted this stuff out, the name here, and I don't know if this is real, is Buck Starsky. Yeah, well, I'm not sure that's his <laughs> given Christian name either. 
But it found out that Donald Stevens has a fucking number or an address that's registered like it's an AEW address and all it's coming. It's coming from inside the house is what it's coming from. They're trying to, this guy's getting under their skin. He's a bee in their bonnet. It don't take a lot of his gravy to go all over their plate. I could go on, but he's got them aggravated. Well, I guess just to sum it all up then, since you seem to be well aware of the story and I'm seeing here. I guess an email he sent to Jeff Jones. I remember Jeff Jones. He was friends with Greg Greenland. An email he sent to yeah, Jeff Jones. That, actually, I never had any problems with Jeff, but you went right to the heart of the matter of how that he was a fucking friend of Greg the Office Boy, and not, now I don't no, like not, Jeff. No, not Greg the Office Boy. Greg Greenland, the fan. Oh. <laughs> not Greg the Office Boy. I, I, I heard Greg Gilliland. Oh, no, no, See, no. They, worked to get, they hired Jeff Jones to work in the office at Ring of Honor for a while, too, and then... I think he's one that told Greg the office boy some more shit that he didn't know, and he got fired also. Yeah, so apparently Aubrey Edwards, on behalf of the company, using a fake name, it says here the accusation states that Aubrey Edwards' real name, Brittany Albert, is orchestrating these DMCA takedowns under the name Donald Stevens. <laughs> as we all know, representing a copyright holder is perfectly legal and acceptable, so as long as it is clearly stated that the party is an off. All right, so they're trying to get an answer from Jeff Jones, apparently, and they're not getting one. But any final thoughts on the idea that AEW itself, or if somehow this is happening without AEW's consent by someone, the idea of this content being pulled down? I don't really have any opinion one way or the other. Otherwise, then it's, it saves people a lot of time when this guy is going and clipping down all the botches into one easy-to-watch video instead of having to watch through the shitty matches just to see the you know momentarily funny stuff so he's doing a public service but could someone argue that the botches are as much a draw as anything else that if you see that it would actually make you want to watch well yeah well for the past three years a couple hundred thousand members of their audience have been our listeners watching to laugh at what we talk about we established that at one point we stopped talking about them they lost two hundred thousand viewers in like three weeks um so, yeah, that is part of the appeal because the the people that watch AEW don't watch it for great wrestling. They watch it for the car wrecks, the chaos, and people to do stupid shit that they can laugh at, either on purpose or accidentally. And that's, you know, that's where they're getting viewers away from the WWE because the WWE has just decided to go the boring route, nothing unprofessional, nothing really funny either accidentally or on purpose and nothing incredibly dangerous or reckless that you would go oh wow look at that it's just boring over on the other side of the fence you've got all the stuff that's stupid and boring and people can laugh at so they're two different audiences but with aubrey edwards i don't know you know donald stevens whatever the case you would think if somebody had given her the choice of, of of changing her name or changing her face, I would have gone with the face instead of the name, but that's just me. Well, I don't know if anyone's giving out that option. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, the drive-thru is closed. Let's get a song or two before we wrap things up. Well, somebody said she, at one point, said Aubrey Edwards is two-faced. And I said, that's absolutely ridiculous. If she was, she wouldn't be wearing the one she's got on now. Well, let's see uh, what these songs have on for us. And here's our first song sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from the wrestling cartoonist. Let's go to this. He sent two different things. Let me try this one. 
will say your prayers straight hard and take your vitamins. And let me tell you something, brother. I slammed Andre toward my back, hurt him fast away. Three days after the fact, Jack. With his mouth wide open, no arms of shame inside. Finally get to hear Hogan and Metallica, Jim. I was 400 days in a single year Making round trips to Japan, dude <laughs> I know Lars, he's my pal, you know, from Metallica He asked me to join the band, dude With his mouth wide open No one's of shame inside I would never, never lie, dude. Now I may be down to sleep. Well, you know, I was when a year without sleeping, dude. <laughs> you know, I was a goalkeeper in the 40s. I died you know, I was died for four days straight. Well, let me tell you something. the wrestling cartoonist if that is indeed his real name with enter hogan what are your th- what are your thoughts on this oh i would never never lie very good excellent as a matter of fact that that was very creative it deserves a a professional sound mixing i think that's the only thing it could have been bumped up there was that's such good material i would have loved to have had custom music and everything for that put together I completely agree. Let's get another one here, Jim. This one was sent to CornyDriveThru at gmail.com from Andrew in Dublin, Ireland. spreading the tax I'm bleeding today I want to be a part of it war games war games these vagabond marks they are longing to flay their skin and be a part of it 
War games, war games. I wanna wake up in a medical facility <laughs> and find that I've nearly died. Will the pain subside? Jake Hager's in there with his thousand yard stare. <laughs> He's gonna make a giant bore of it. War games, war games. And if I can botch in there, you know I'm gonna fuck up anywhere. It's up to you. War games, war games. War games, war games. I want to wake up on a crash pad by the cave. <laughs> And find I broke some plywood Will the spots look good? Jericho's up there He can't climb down <laughs> These video game nerds They're all cheering away Yeah! They're gonna cream their pants because of it. War games, war game. If I can botch in there, you know I'm gonna fuck up anywhere. It's up to you. Tony, Tony. note than the last clang of uh, day in the life uh, that was top to bottom what vocal prowess what lyrical majesty what incredible inventive creativeness creativeness creativity I could go on but I've botched it already so I will say bravo sir fantastic job Andrew in Dublin Ireland all the money in the world and it took bad booking to get people to write songs about Tony Khan. But with that, we're not topping those two. The drive-thru is closed. All right. Pleasant ending. And a crash onto the desk. Of course, we'll be back at it. Sunday. This week, once again, a Sunday night release for the experience. 
including a review of the Ring of Honor pay-per-view and so much more. Check it out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We'll be back next week with The Drive-Thru, once again, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Check out the archive of The Drive-Thru and the experience by becoming a patron. Patreon.com slash Cornette. For $5 a month, you get access to The Drive-Thru and the experience going back to 2013. Patreon.com slash Cornette. Subscribe to the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Full episodes, clips of episodes, omnibus collections, all with the very popular, exclusive Travis Heckle artwork, the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. You can follow Jim on Twitter at the Jim Cornette. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Jim, what's going on at Cornette's Collectibles? I'll tell you what, if you ordered from jimcornette.com this past weekend any of the variety of action figures and etc., it's going to be in the mail, I forgot to mention this, within the next week and a half. I will have everything caught up, wrapped up because of the help of the feather bottoms and the fact that we didn't have 2,000 figures on sale this time. Everything will be in the mail between now and uh, about a week or eight or nine days from now. From jimcornette.com. Jim so there'll right. be no waiting. <laughs> Just send me more money. Purchase things. I dare you. Which you can do at jimcornette.com. And of course, the drive through is brought to you by the law office of Stephen P. New, 888 692 8084. Get even with Stephen at newlawoffice.com. But until this weekend on the experience and next week, right back here on the drive through for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Well, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big Fuck and Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them door corner bum fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella, and Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. the mighty cult of cornets, and to the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow-up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines, with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos, and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. 
Yeah, they play with this Sega. You need to sue the guy for you, Steven, Pedro, everybody. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. And now here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass.